Welcome to The Big Picture, a show that takes a deep dive into the political landscape of not only America, but right here in our own backyard of Illinois. It's showtime, folks. The Big Picture is on WCPT 820. And now, here's your host, Edwin Eisentrath. Hello, everyone. Happy uh, Saturday. I'm coming to you from a snowy, cold Chicago The snow is coming down as we speak. Um, We have a lot to talk about this week. Uh, uh, And two of the topics I'm happy to talk about when you call in, but they're so painful and raw. Um, uh, One is, of course, Tyree Nichols and that uh, just hideous police murder. I don't know what else to call it, that the country saw a heartbreak again. Again, again, and then a series of mass shootings again, again, again. Uh, these are things we can do something about. We can, but we can't uh, make progress while we have a group of people trying to stop us from making progress. And we've talked about that. Um, I, I, you know, I sought wisdom in an unlikely place this week. I, I looked right. I don't usually do that. But the right wing in America has long clung to words like tyranny and freedom, even as as GOP controlled legislatures and MAGA governors perfect the former and restrict the latter. They continue to cast these words like a spell. Governor Ron DeSantis touts free Florida as he bans books. Governor Kim Reynolds talks about education freedom in Iowa as she defunds public schools. On Fox TV, both Hannity and Carlson, they talk about tyranny as they incite violence against the weak and marginalized. Powerful rhetoric like theirs. We've talked about that rhetoric on this show with experts. Powerful rhetoric like that. It can make us see sacred bonds and secret plots. But listen carefully, and you'll hear their words slip loose from their actual meaning, and instead gain an incantatory power to numb the mind and forge some kind of factional identity. None of this is new. A century ago, this kind of rhetoric belonged to fascists. A lot of good it did the world. Today, it belongs to the MAGA GOP. But every now and again, someone on the right uses words in their usual sense, and I wanted to reach out to consider their arguments and see if there was common ground. So I logged into the Federalist to see what I could find. Well, the Federalist is not something we talk about here on WCPT, um, and it's not my usual reading. The front page of the website just this week lists articles with titles like Climate Extremists' Hideous Wind Farms Are Coming to Your Backyard. And wait a minute, there's another one right here. Uh, Get ready for another cynical, useless gun control push by Democrats. Really? Really this week? Ugh, shameless. Still, I I wanted to understand where there was common ground, and I found a 2017 piece by one of their senior contributors, Stella Morabito. Morabito, in her piece, is concerned about the threat that she thinks communism poses to the United States. And while I don't see any evidence of that threat. I wondered how the right sees threats generally and if she had any warning signs that might be useful. Here's what she wrote. 
She said in a recent article, I sketched out six phases on the road to communism and summarized the trends in each phase. One, laying the groundwork. Two, propaganda. Three, agitating the masses. Four, consolidating control over society's institutions. Five, coercing conformity. And six, final solutions. As I read this, I thought, well, well, maybe I see eye to eye with the editor of The Federalist. But then I had a, a, another thought. Maybe this was not really a warning about the supposed threat posed by Bernie Sanders in 2017. Maybe instead, it was intended as a guidebook for what would come. Look, the relentless campaigns describing Democrats using slurs that in another era were applied to Jews of child trafficking and controlling the press. And then, of course, the big lie. This constitutes step one, laying the groundwork. The second step is propaganda. It goes without saying, or it should, that Fox TV and much of what flies around social media fits that purpose. But if there's any doubt the link of the link between right-wing media and right-wing political operation, it was clear when Hannity broadcast from the House after Kevin McCarthy became the speaker, as if the House were the Kevin McCarthy show. Well, agitating the masses is Morbido's third step. January 6th was the most obvious case, but um, anyone attending a school board meeting anywhere in America can see it almost any day. Consolidating control over institutions is next on her list. Here the Democrats have fought back, but not fully successfully. The autocrats hold many state legislatures in Ohio and Wisconsin only because of radical gerrymandering and voter suppression. They've captured the U.S. Supreme Court, which is now partisan rather than jurisprudential in its power. Um, By a slim majority, they now control the People's House in Washington. And they maintain this control through unlimited dark money, which their court allowed into our politics. The fifth step, coerce and conformity. Here again, see Florida. That's what the book bans and the canceled drag shows are about. It's why much of the right all over the country sees political violence as legitimate politics. Morabito calls her six-step final solutions. This one is particularly hard for me. Yesterday was Holocaust Remembrance Day, and I very much doubt Morabito used that term, final solutions, innocently. Her point, I guess, is that this progression can only lead to terrible ends. And there I could not further agree. We're going to talk about that in this show, and and it's going to be quite fabulous. Some people you've met before, like Jeremy Young, who's from Pan America. I'll introduce him in a minute. Jordan Smith is investigative journalist from The Intercept. Um, Ruth Bengat is back. and so is Laura Bellin. All are going to talk about uh, this this slide away from democracy in one way or another. And I think it's going to make for an interesting show. So um, why don't we take our first break now? When we come back, I'll be joined by Jeremy Young, and I'll introduce him after the break. Stay tuned. You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisendrath on WCPT 820. 
right, everybody. We are now joined by Jeremy Young, who many of you remember. He uh, is the senior manager of Penn America's Free Expression and Education Program. In, in, in that role, he tracks threats to free expression and free thought, book bans, political intrusions into curricula and the like. Jeremy and I talk when things get bad, and we are talking a lot. Jeremy, welcome back. Thanks. So glad to be here, although I wish things weren't as bad as they are. Yep. Um, look, not everybody who's on the, uh, listening to us today has listened to us before, so would you take a moment and remind everybody about PEN America and your important work, and then we'll get into some things. Thanks, Edwin. Uh, so PEN America is a 100-year-old free expression organization uh, and human rights organization whose members are professional writers. Um, we defend free expression and the freedom to read and write and, and learn and speak in uh, countries around the world, we defend writers who are who are uh, imprisoned or threatened be, based on their their work. And increasingly, right here in the United States, we've been defending uh, you know, free speech on college campuses and increasingly in K to twelve schools uh, as it's been uh, threatened. Uh, reading right, reading and writing have been threatened, and learning and speaking have been threatened there as well. So I want to get into some of those threats, but but let me ask you one more sort of big picture question before we do. I, I, I want to be explicit about this more and more. I guess we have to educate people everywhere about how democracies work. So can you make the connection between free speech and a thriving democracy? And then we'll get into the threats to free speech. You know, free speech is absolutely essential for uh, democracy and particularly free speech in an educational setting. When you see uh, teachers and students being censored uh, and curricular materials being censored, what you are seeing is students, children uh, and adults in colleges uh, who are not being able to learn uh, or read or understand perspectives different from their own, or in some cases, perspectives similar to their own in a formal setting. Uh, what happens when, when that happens is that those students grow up, uh, become adults without having uh, a real understanding of the people around them or the ideas that exist in the world. Uh, then they become voters and leaders in our country, and they, they lack the context and the understanding uh, to make decisions effectively. So when you censor schools in particular, you are uh, censoring a vital part of democracy. In fact, democracy really depends on free expression in educational settings, and that's what we're here to, to defend. Yeah, I mean, teaching people that other points of view are not worth hearing, but are worth, oh, I don't know, forcefully uh, silencing is a, is a truly appalling and dangerous message. <laughs> It's the message that brings us to Florida. Um, This week, Jeremy, teachers were, I guess, told to remove books from their classrooms, hide books on their shelves, or risk felony prosecution. Can you talk about that? Uh, that's absolutely right, uh, and it's shameful. Uh, you know what happened here is, uh, you know, last year Florida's legislature passed uh, HB 1467, which was a bill that made it easier for uh, parents or or general community members in general to challenge books in classroom and school libraries. Um, the state has uh, interpreted this, and individual school districts have interpreted this in particularly draconian ways. Um, and what happened uh, this past week was uh, one school district in Manatee County uh, told teachers uh, at one point that all the teachers would have to to 
put a, a sheet over all of the books in their classroom libraries. Those are the books that sit inside of the classroom uh, for students to read uh, and prevent students from checking them out until the books in those libraries could be vetted by uh, some committee of school board members and others uh, for, for, to see whether they had pornography or indecent material in them. Um, and the teachers were told that if they did not put a sheet over those books, uh, that they were subject to third-degree felony prosecution for uh, basically distributing obscene materials to minors. Now, after one day, uh, the school district uh, backed down somewhat and said that the prohibition applied only to uh, books that the teachers themselves had provided for students, that the, the books in the, that were, came out of the school library and were in classrooms were all right, but if the teacher had brought in books themselves, those had to be vetted uh, or the, the teacher would be subject to a, to a felony. Um, there's all sorts of things wrong with this. You know, among other things, uh, it's not what the law says. The law is bad enough. Uh, the law allows books to be challenged, but it doesn't require them all to be reviewed uh, by some authority before they can be handed out to students uh, with, with felony charges uh, hanging over the, the heads of teachers. Um, you know, and, and, and we don't support that law either, and really we don't support any of this. There, there were meetings in this school board uh, where school board members were asking principals whether they, and school, you know, the school superintendents whether they had uh, told the teachers to put the sheet over or, or not over the books, uh, and the principals uh, kept trying to say they hadn't, but clearly that's what happened. I, I, the burden on teachers in America is already great. But I fervently hope that there's some with an extra amount of courage who are willing to go through civil disobedience here um, and just uh, risk everything and take this to court. It's so appalling. I'm not sure we'll win in court today, in today's courts, but um, I, there's nothing good for our democracy and there's nothing consistent with the bests of our history and tradition in this. You know, it's a tough position for teachers to be in, and we, we've seen you know, some, some real significant evidence that the teachers are under increasing pressure from these kind of censorship policies. You know, there, there was a study uh, just this week from the RAND Corporation that showed that uh, not only that a quarter of all teachers in the United States had been uh, told that they, they had to uh, restrict materials uh, in their courses because they might be too political or controversial. They were told this by their supervisors. Um, but that those restrictions on content fell disproportionately on teachers and faculty of color, um, particularly African-American teachers, almost 50% of whom had been censored by some sort of uh, uh, supervisor uh, from teaching various material. And we know that this is having an effect on the nationwide teacher shortage. There's no way that uh, you know, we don't have enough teachers, they aren't paid enough, they aren't treated well enough, and now here we come with, with laws and censorship and threatening teachers with felonies for having books in their classroom. There's no way that this is good for teachers or students or democracy. Yeah, well, later in the show and with another guest, Jeremy, I'm going to talk about Iowa, where they're just getting rid of the schools entirely. They seem to, you know, <laughs> give us and the parents a kit and they can do it all at all. Such an enormous march backwards. But look, look, this Manatee County problem is not the only one in Florida. I read that another county banned 176 books. That's right. So a few months ago, Duval County um, did basically the same thing that Manatee County did, uh, requiring that all these classroom libraries uh, be essentially taken out of circulation until they could be vetted 
Um, and that vetting process, uh, you know, they did not back down after after one day. And that vetting process has been ongoing for months with no end in sight. Um, you know, they want multiple members of the school board to read each book in a classroom library before it can be put back on the shelves. And, you know, we've also seen, um, you know, similar policies uh, passed in Escambia County where uh, the school library librarian ordered uh, a series of uh, of uh, a sort of set of over a hundred diverse books that came in a set, and those books have been sitting in a warehouse for nearly a year, uh, waiting for some sort of review that may never come uh, again under this this law. You know, the 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 the, the applications of this law um, have just you know it's varied by from county to county, but certainly a number of counties are are applying it way beyond what the law actually calls for. Uh, what kind of books are being banned? What is what triggers these boards and parents to ban a book? So here's the fundamental answer to that question. It's a good question. Um, the 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 boards and the parents claim, and again, it's worth noting that this is a tiny minority of parents who actually believe this or, or are making this, these claims, who are wielding outsized influence in these school districts. Um, but they claim that, that these are books that are pornographic or obscene, that contain obscene materials, graphic descriptions of sex, things of that that sort. What we can see by looking at the national picture is that um, the for for one thing, you know, most of the books that are being banned, uh, you know, may contain some sort of a some sort of a, a mild, uh, you know, sexual content or something. But you know, we're not looking with, with a couple of exceptions. We're not looking at books that are any different from anything a student could find online. But the more important thing is that uh, the, the the books that are often being described as pornographic or obscene are disproportionately books with LGBTQ characters uh, as protagonists or important secondary characters or LGBTQ storylines or characters who are African-American uh, as their primary characters. So what is happening is you know, these, these groups are looking at these books and finding ways to, to describe them as obscene and, uh, and, and, and not applying that standard uniformly based on race or sexual identity. So uh, really, you know, it, obscene in this case is becoming a code word for um, a book about, about diverse characters. Yeah, because, I mean, they're not banning, oh, I don't know, the Bible, Genesis, which has plenty of sex. It has incest. It has all kinds of things that are as racy as can be, right? But they're, um, they're fine, because I guess that's in the context of this holy book. But if any of those characters was black, I guess they'd ban the book. You know, the interesting thing is they have banned the Bible in a couple of school districts, including one in Texas. Uh, there was a district in Texas uh, that, that, that said that, um, that any book that had been challenged for any reason would be automatically banned until it had been reviewed. Um, and uh, one of the books that had been challenged was the Illustrated Children's Bible. Uh, now, this, this right here is the crux of the problem. The, uh, there's no problem with uh, a review process that considers books in their, in their totality, that considers their artistic merit and literary merit. Um, and age appropriateness, all of that. Onto a shelf. Yeah. 
Exactly. And in fact, that's, that's the process that brings these books to the school in the first place. It's selected by school librarians through a collaborative process and, and using their expertise. Uh, there's no problem with having some, some sort of review of that process. The problem occurs when, uh, when the school decides that the books, uh, that the process needs to be short circuited. The books must be off the, the shelves, uh, while they're being reviewed or until they can be reviewed. Now that is contrary to uh, you know, policy and practice recommended by the, the American Library Association, recommended by the National Coalition Against Censorship, which uh, is drawn directly from uh, the Supreme Court decision in Peak Island Trees v. Pico in 1992. So when these school districts take the books off the shelves uh, while they're reviewing them, that's where the problem occurs. You know, it's, it's almost as if, you know, someone didn't like uh, your show, Edwin, and so they took you off the air while you're, you're for three months while the station reviewed its content. No, you review the content, and only if there's a problem with, with the content do you take the, take the material away. Well, so, you, so you've identified the process problem, but there's also, I guess, in America, an enormous difference in what we think are appropriate books. Um, and, and there's a faction, I guess, that believes that books that don't tell a very traditional story of America from the perspective of white Americans as it was taught a generation ago, that anything that, that, that somehow that's an orthodoxy, that anything that differs from that to the degree, degree in which it differs is a degree in which it should be banned. And that, that um, I guess, is what you're telling me. I think that's true, but it's worth noting that that's a, that's a tiny minority of, of Americans. You know, the, the American uh, Federation of Teachers uh, last year put out a messaging poll where they tested uh, popular conservative messaging frames around various types of educational censorship. And their goal was to find a, a way of framing every policy that conservatives were, were promoting, some conservatives were promoting around censoring education that would, would register as popular so they could understand the reason that these, that these, these, these provisions were passing. Um, and they were able to get a lot of provisions, you know, what, what we call educational gag orders or, or anti-CRT bills, um, parents' rights bills. They were able to get a lot of these provisions to pull it. Uh, you know, at, at large majorities of support if you phrase it in just the right way. They were not able to get anywhere close to a majority of Americans to support book banning under any circumstances. And we've seen poll after poll that shows that book banning is the single most unpopular of all of these relatively unpopular censorship uh, tactics, including a poll uh, a few months ago that I saw in Tennessee uh, that suggested that 30, sorry, 64 percent of People who live in rural Tennessee oppose book banning in any con- uh, situation at any time. So there really is no group of Americans among whom this is popular, but that tiny minority is seizing control just through, through shoe leather and hard work of these, these school districts and these boards and, and you know, passing these laws and trying to, make, trying to impose their will on the majority of Americans. Yeah, that's a theme in this show, that, um, that democracy itself is in – is weaker than we think and threatened terribly by a determined small minority. They're not popular. What they're doing does not have popular support, and yet they have gained the tools of power to enforce it upon the rest of us, which is not what anybody thinks of when they think of a functioning democracy. That's absolutely right. Go ahead. No, after you. I was just going to say, you know, it, it is it is really astonishing how 
attacks on democracy are using, uh, you know, increasingly using uh, the tools of censorship as a way to to carry out their their goals, and that really explains what the purpose of censorship is. It is you know, free free expression naturally leads to uh, to to a robust democracy. So if you want to undermine a democracy, the first thing you undermine is free expression. Yep. Um... Before, we're going to take, a, I guess, a break because we're at the bottom of the hour, and I need to do this, Jeremy, for a moment for uh, to get the show, to show paid for. Um, but we'll be back, and I have so many other questions for you about Florida and elsewhere. Folks, stay tuned. This is WCPT 820, where facts matter. You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisendraft on WCPT 820. Okay, we are back, and I'm talking to Penn America's Jeremy Young about uh, a world of censorship. And we have we have been talking about what's gone on in the school districts in Florida. But Jeremy, explain to me then. I mean, I sort of you can make the case that you know young children need to be protected from some kinds of content, not the way they're doing it, but at least there's some case. But twenty thousand books are banned in Florida prisons. What's that about? I mean, these aren't these aren't bomb making books. What are, what are they doing? I mean, the world of, of prison book bans is a is a particularly you know, extreme case of book banning, and you know, the, the, just just as many other you know thing, things that are available to other Americans are banned in prisons. You know, living wages, things of that sort. Mm-hmm. You know, there are mm-hmm. all sorts of books that are being banned, and the people who who build these ban lists, you know, they seem to go through. And select books that uh, that that may you know so so for instance the the the, the book uh, you know Heather Ann Thompson's book on the 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 uh, uh, the Attica uprising you know these mm-hmm. these uh, books that might suggest uh, some sort of unruly behavior by 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 prisoners even if they're historical even if they're really really social analysis are being banned but all sorts of other things are being banned I mean the lists the lists here are really extreme and I think they present a a worst case scenario of what could happen in the rest of the country if we 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 see these book bans uh, you know spreading to other places. Look, we've talked about Florida, but what is this going on? It has spreading to other places. Can we talk about the rest of the country? What's that look like to you? I mean, there things have been a little quiet lately, but uh, certainly there have been um, you know massive numbers of districts. Uh, in Texas, uh, banning books, um, particularly in the you know in, in the in the Dallas Fort Worth area, um, districts in Central Bucks County in Florida uh, that have been been banning books. You know, it's it's a certainly the the the, the book banning train has not slowed down uh, at all since uh, you know since last year. And over the last, you know, we we did do an analysis uh, from that covered the entire last. Uh, school year, 2021 to 2022 school year, we found over 2,500 titles uh, banned during that that period, Uh, 1,600 unique titles, over 2,500 books banned in total, uh, which is the largest number of books banned uh, that any study has ever found in a single year anywhere uh, since studies began being being created in the 1980s. So uh, really, book banning is at an all-time high. Uh, um, We had a kerfuffle, I guess, the governor of my state in Illinois went after um, the governor of Florida because apparently the decision to block a sort of a, a, not just a book, but a whole course on African-American studies, I guess it's now a whole topic that has been banned in, in, in the curriculum, was going to 
get the college board to say, well, then maybe we can't have, you know, AP credit for this and we have to get rid of it for the whole country. Um, Does that sound, does that sound right to you? So this situation in Florida is really, really, is really devastating. You know, this, this, uh, so so here's what happened. The, uh, the the college board, which, which has administered uh, advanced placement courses uh, almost since the beginning of that program of the advanced placement program in 1952, um, created a brand new African-American studies course. It was designed by a team of uh, of scholars led by Henry Louis Gates at Harvard, um, really leading scholars in the African-American studies field. Um, and, and it's worth noting what these courses do. You know, they, these are these are courses that uh, students can take in high school. Um, and if they take the course successfully and then take a test and score a three, four or five, depending on the, the college they're going to uh, on that test, um, they receive college credit for the equivalent course in the college. Um, the, the test costs only ninety seven dollars uh, and the course is free if you take it through your high school. So really, you're, you're getting a college credit. Um, for a fraction of the cost, and you're getting it early uh, while you're still in high school and for high school credit, too, for dual credit. So it's a great opportunity. It's a wonderful opportunity for, for, for students in a state to get a jump on college, to go move through college more easily and quickly and start their working careers uh, more more easily and quickly as well. Um, so uh, the, the government of Florida uh, decided to reject this course. It's the first time since 1952 that any uh, state government has ever rejected an AP course. There have been threats, there have been negotiations over other courses, but they've never outright rejected it before. Um, and, you know, the effect and the argument that they made is that the course is not historical, uh, it's not historically accurate. Um, now, first of all, remember, this is not a history course. It's an interdisciplinary studies course uh, that includes history, but also literature and, and art and culture and film. Um, you know, but but second of all, you know, the, the criticisms, uh, you know, which which the governor uh, expounded on later in a press conference are pretty much nonsense. You know, the governor's argued that the the course contains uh, uh, too, it, too much uh, black queer theory and that that's not relevant to African-American uh, history or studies because, uh, you know, a- queer African-Americans are a small fraction of African-Americans. But the course only called for a single unit on uh, black queer theory, which, of course, is a small fraction of the total uh, year-long course. So, uh, you know, th- these are these are really spurious uh, charges thrown at, at this at this course. And the result of this is going to be that students in Florida who are interested in taking this material will not be able to take it early. They won't be able to take it through the AP program, uh, which provides it cheaper than, than any other way they could get it. Uh, they won't be able to participate in this acclaimed national curriculum, uh, and they won't be able to, you know, attain those early college credits. So really, you know, the, the government is, uh, in, in trying to make some sort of politically charged point, uh, and censor the viewpoints that are presented in this course is withholding education for millions of students in Florida. It's really tragic. But, but there's no, there's no risk that the college board will back down and say, okay, we're not offering this course anywhere. Is there? Uh, I don't think the college board would would uh, refuse to offer the course. Um, you know, there, there's certainly a possibility that the college board could could make changes based on what the state is calling for. Uh, although, uh, contrary to some reporting, they have not said at this point that they are doing that. They are rolling out 
a revision of the course, but it was the revision has been ongoing for a year as they piloted the course. It's not something related to to Florida. Uh, my hope is that they won't back down and that they will present this this material in the way that you know that makes the most sense for students and, and for teachers, rather than giving into this this partisan political intimidation. Chairman, we've talked about books, and now we've talked about an entire course, but. <laughs> This, this urge to ban um, goes further. They're uh, closing down uh, drag shows all over the country, uh, here in Illinois as well. I mean, uh, not by the government, but by, um, in some cases, angry uh, guys with guns, just saying we're going to stand outside and with our guns, and it's not, won't make, and parents are saying, well, I guess we can't take anybody there. So drag shows are also being um, restricted, I guess, restricted by law in Florida, but by actions elsewhere. What else? Art exhibits have been closed um, in, in museums. Is it, oh, and, and did, did I hear correctly? Did DeSantis uh, say he was going to make Pink Floyd illegal in the state this week? Oh, I haven't heard that one, but uh, it certainly wouldn't surprise me. Uh, you know, the point you're making about drag shows being being banned really is significant, and it isn't only in Florida that there are legislative proposals to ban to ban drag shows. Um, you know, there there are, uh, you know, there, there, we we have at this point cataloged uh, 14 bills that would restrict or censor drag shows in 10 states. Um, and you know, some of those bills would uh, ban minors from viewing or participating in a drag performance. You know, others, w- some would make it a felony uh, for for uh, someone under the age of 19 in Nebraska. Uh, so an adult at 18 would be a felony to attend a drag show. Um, you know, others would, would reclassify drag shows as adult or sexually oriented. And the way that they do this is so draconian that it's going to sweep things uh, into the bands that aren't even drag shows. Uh, so, for instance, uh, any person who is uh, in some of these laws, any person who is transgender and is wearing uh, clothing that the that, that some you know, law enforcement officer or, or enforcer of the law uh, considers to be not the, the clothing uh, that conforms to the gender they were assigned at birth uh, could be arrested and, and as, as uh, you know, being a felony drag performer. Um, whoa, 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 back up, back up. Where was that? <laughs> that uh, the, so there's a there's a bill in Oklahoma uh, that we're looking at that says wow. that, uh, that, that no that no and, and it also says that no drag performance can be create uh, uh, created within a half a mile radius of a school, uh, meaning that if you're walking within a half a mile of a school, uh, you know wearing wearing drag or wearing uh, simply the clothes that you identify with um, that, that, that correspond to the gender you identify with. Uh, that you could be arrested and uh, charged with a felony for that. Um, I'm like, Jeremy, I, I'm just my here. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. I'm blown away. No, yeah, this, go ahead. It, it gets even it gets even weirder because um, this would we, we also believe that some of these laws would classify uh, theatrical performances w- that are traditionally played by people of a different gender from the character. So, for instance, Shakespeare. The, the, the musical of Peter Peter Pan, right, traditionally right. played by a woman, um, yep. that could be classified as a sexually explicit performance and minors would not be allowed to attend it uh, under a felony threat. So, you know, this is really extreme, the, the way these laws are unfolding. Yeah, but I, I guess 
so, so they have some idea of how you're supposed to dress in your gender. Can a woman be arrested for wearing pants? Well, that certainly seems like the next step, doesn't it? I mean, it, this is well, it, there's no way to enforce this sort of law, and so really, the effect of this law is going to be to uh, as a, a total chilling effect. You know, anyone just well, to make people afraid walking down the street. All right, everybody who's listening, look, I spent 12 years working um, in and around uh, the Middle East, most of the time in and out of Saudi Arabia, um, where there were very strict gender rules on what people could wear. And they had a, they had at the time, they've disbanded it since, and they've liberalized since, but at the time they had the, uh, something called the religious police. It was actually called the, the Society for the Prevention of Vice and the Preservation of Virtue or something like that. And they went around, and if you were a woman and your hair was not in your headscarf, you could be arrested. And certainly they stopped a lot of people and said, you're, you know, you're standing too close to this guy. Um, this is a, this is, I mean, once you say that you have, you are subject to sanctioned by law, if you are not in gender specific clothing, we've crossed the line that I, I just don't, I just don't think it's ever happened in America. I mean, there have been certainly uh, local regulations of this type that were enforced, you know, what, in the 1800s, uh, and certainly uh, as recently as the 1980s. Uh, with you know, Anita Bryant's Save Our Children campaign, there were efforts to restrict drag performances um, you know, under the rubric that they the, uh, the suggestion that they were pedophilia or in, or sexually endangering children. Um, but it's certainly you know we haven't seen anything like this in at least forty years, and some of these things we haven't seen in a century. Okay, um, I've just pulled up the article on Pink Floyd for you. Apparently. Um, you know, they've re, they've re-released an album, a famous album called Dark Side of the Moon. The oh, album yeah. cover album. is a rainbow. So DeSantis has said, <laughs> "Is that this is unacceptable? You know, grooming gay, terrible trans art, and not, and it's banned from the state. I don't know how you ban music from the state, but apparently he's not been saying he's going to do it." That is, uh, that's a pretty extraordinary statement. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Even by his standards, Pink right? Floyd. Yeah, yeah, Pink Floyd, that's, uh, that's, that's, that's saying something. That really is. Uh, um, okay, so let's, I, I just, I'm, I'm so concerned about this. It isn't just people that I really think are a danger to the democracy, like uh, Ron DeSantis. It isn't just... Um, the right that that some that, I mean they're the ones who are trying to do it by law. But what do you make of Harvard saying no to Ken Roth before they said yes to Ken Roth? And Ken Roth, uh, full disclosure, I know him. I'm uh, I, I know his his brother, and I worked together for years. His brother was my boss. Ken um, was the head of Human Rights Watch, very well respected around the world. But Human Rights Watch. Um, uh, one of the hardest things they did was talk about both sides of the Israel-Palestine dilemma. And, and whenever they thought there were human rights violations, they called them out. And because of that, uh, Harvard said, uh, I know we said you could come lecture, but we're walking away from that. And then there was a firestorm. Can you talk about that? 
Yes, absolutely. So, so the the, the program that uh, the Harvard Kennedy School uh, of Business uh, has a bunch of uh, uh, departments in it, and they have a program of of, of uh, distinguished fellows who they bring in, who essentially become a faculty member for a year. They teach one class, uh, do a series of lectures, um, and they are they they are typically people without an academic background. They're typically people uh, who are. Who, who are major figures, uh, you know, in politics or in the law or in business, um, who are who are who come in to to work with students in a in a in a limited capacity. Um, and this is the program that uh, Ken Roth was invited to participate in. Um, and you know, this program has not been without controversy before. In in uh, 2017, uh, there was some controversy because uh, the program had invited uh, Chelsea Manning, uh, the, the whistleblower, uh, to be uh, uh, to be one of these faculty fellows, um, and also had invited uh, Corey Lewandowski, who was uh, President Trump's first campaign manager, to be a fellow. Uh, and there was a backlash against both of those appointments, and ultimately Manning was disinvited, uh, and Lewandowski was not, and was able to, to come and, and, and be a fellow. Um, so fast forward, uh, you know, five years to the end of 2022, uh, and similarly, you know, the the, the program uh, gave into public pressure to to disinvite uh, Ken Roth uh, before giving into more public pressure and reinviting him. Now, uh, I want to say at the outset that the decision to reinvite uh, him is a good one, and that's what you know, they're restoring the position that the decision that should have been made in the first place. But this is a troubling development because. These are, even though they are unusual positions, they are faculty positions and they are subject to academic freedom per, uh, protections. And what that means is you shouldn't be disinviting someone because of their views. If they've, they've done something to harm someone, uh, you know, if they, if they, they physically you know, committed some sort of a crime or physically hurt someone, then, then you should, you know, you have a, you have a right to, to, to make a decision like that. But to, to rescind an invitation that's already been given and accepted to a faculty member, to be a faculty member, yeah, because their views are unpopular or controversial or even offensive, uh, is wrong. And you know, we're glad that Harvard uh, Kennedy School saw that, but we hope that there won't be more cases like this. And this, this is not the first one. It's fairly troubling. Yeah, and to be fair, um, I mean, or to be tough, I don't know. It's not like Ken Roth changed his views between the time he got the offer and the time they rescinded it. I mean, there's nothing that was new here. They just somebody somebody said, "Oh, you," and then they knew it. And it's not like they hadn't done their homework either. They just caved to pressure. Right. Uh, so and if Harvard, be a better vet, vetting process for these these cases, I don't, but, um, you know. But it, I, if you're gonna if just, you're gonna hire someone, you hire them. My, but, but Jeremy, Harvard has got a you know billions of dollars in their endowment. They're one of the most powerful institutions in the world, not just in our country. And if they cave to these pressures to restrict free speech, it's hard to imagine that it, go back to my case of wanting to see someone, a teacher in Florida, stand up. How is it possible that an individual is going to be able to stand up to this pressure when an organization as powerful as Harvard is is his first instinct is to cave. It's 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 tough. It's tough. And and to to return to those those teachers in Florida, I mean, I, I think this is this is key at least for me. You know, I'm I'm hesitant to tell a teacher that they should sacrifice their career to stand up against the law because the truth is, if they're replaced, they're going to be replaced by someone who may not be as unhappy with the law as they are. Um, but what we don't want teachers to do, and what we see all the time happening, we don't want teachers to 
censor themselves beyond what the law actually requires. You know, these laws are written in very vague ways. They don't actually have a lot of specific prohibitions or bans. Um, and yet they, they cause teachers and school administrators to prohibit and ban uh, many more things uh, than are even in the law simply because they censor themselves. And we, you know, we, what we encourage is that you, know, you, you don't say anything that's, gonna, that's definitely 100% certain going to get you fired. Uh, but if it's, if it's a gray area, if it's not specifically mentioned in the law or covered in the law, it's not banned by the law. And you should feel free to teach it and, and, and to say it. Yep, yep. Well, these laws are gray because they know that that will cause self-censorship. Always does. Exactly. That's, uh, that's the point. Jeremy, I have two other sort of questions for you. One is that I, I know you focus on the U.S., um, um, but Penn operates all over the world. I mean, what other nations are as eager as we seem to be to restrict access to books, to art exhibits, to professors, um, and, and, and at the same time, you know, sort of th- threatening people who report on it. I mean, well, like, it sounds like uh, Iran to me, and not not a not a group we want to be in their company. Yeah, I'll tell you, it's not a list of it, it's it's not a list of of uh, you know global heroes. That's for sure. Um, you know, first on that list uh, is certainly Russia. Um, you know, we we there, there was an incredible moment when. Uh, you probably heard about this. It happened last year, but uh, but the, a school district in Tennessee banned the book Mouse, a Pulitzer Prize yes. winning uh, graphic novel about the Holocaust. Um, and they said they banned it because it had a swastika on the cover. But, of course, it's an anti-Nazi uh, book. Um, right. And for us at PEN America, this, this recalled uh, something uh, that had happened in 2014 when Vladimir Putin banned Mouse using the same argument, saying that it was a pro-Nazi book because it had a, Holocaust, had a, had a, had a uh, swastika on the cover. Um, and then we're hearing the same argument in Tennessee. I mean, that's, that's, pretty, that's pretty damning. Um, you know, certainly, uh, you know, there, we have seen uh, book bans uh, in Turkey. Um, we've seen uh, bans of entire academic disciplines in Hungary, um, bans of LGBTQ material in Russia, you know, bands of, uh, of discussion of gender, what they call gender ideology in Brazil. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the, these are, you know, w- w- there is some evidence that some of these ideas are coming from the United States, that they're essentially being exported to, to these authoritarian countries, and some evidence that it moves in the opposite direction, particularly when it, when it comes to Hungary. Um, but, but, you know, this is not a list of, you know, I, I, this is what I always tell yeah. people who want to ban books and want to censor classrooms. Look back in history. Look at other countries. Tell me a great hero, a wonderful leader uh, or figure who banned books and censored classrooms. You can't find a single one. We don't look well on, uh, in our history on people who uh, want to shut down the discussion and debate. It, we don't look well on that in other countries. We shouldn't look well on it in our own. So we've been talking about this um, freely, and you and I are able to do that. But you also surveyed journalists about disinformation, which I thought was fascinating. And can I just – I'm going to read what I copied from your – three out of five journalists surveyed said that amid the proliferation of disinformation and distrust, at least one of these things had happened to them, threatening emails, phone calls, or letters – harassed in person while working, being doxxed or trolled, being catfished, and or feared for their personal safety. So so 
so just having the conversation you and I are having, if reporters report on it, three out of five say that they that these things happen to them. Yeah, I mean, the quote you read is from uh, a great report that some of my colleagues put together called Hard News, uh, Journalists and the Threat of Disinformation. And it's and it's well worth a read. And and yes, you know, the, the, what it suggests is is that uh, these attacks on journalists, the, these threats against journalists are endemic, um, you know, on social media in, in email inboxes and really in our culture. And, it, and it's, it's a terrifying uh, fact. And it's also something you know imp- important to note because it is something that, you know, their, their employers uh, are able to do have some power to combat. You know, they, they do have some policies that they can institute that can they can support journalists more effectively so they aren't dealing with these issues on their own. Um, but yep. certainly it's a it's a scary new dimension of of journalism for a lot of the, the folks you know who, who are involved. And I talk to a lot of journalists and they're some of the most courageous people I know. Yeah, it says to me, though, that on on the right, the same guys who are doing the book banning have decided that coercion um, is legitimate form of politics. Um, and this is all uh, playing from the handbook for the destruction of democracy. It, absolutely terrifying. Jeremy, in the time we have left, which is, I think, about four minutes, can you help us understand how people can help Penn achieve its mission and what people can do in their own communities to combat um, when they see uh, uh, either coercion like that or or book bans or, you know, any of the things that we've talked about that restricts freedom of thinking. Absolutely. So uh, in terms of uh, PEN America, I would say, first of all, you know, go to our website, PEN.org. That's P-E-N dot O-R-G. Uh, and you'll see at the top of the page two boxes, a red box that says subscribe that will put you on some of our email lists so you can find some updates on the work that we're doing. Very, very useful. Those subscriptions are all free. Um, and then a black box next to it uh, that that is a membership box. Um, and, you're, you know, we, we'd love to have uh, folks as members, um, you know, even if you're not a professional writer, we have a readers category uh, of members that you're welcome to join. Uh, you know, we, we, the more we grow our ranks, uh, the more effective we're going to be on this work. Uh, in terms of what you can do in your own communities, you know, these uh, really change on these issues begins at home. And what we're seeing here is two things. First of all, the people who want to engage in censorship, they are a minority of Americans. They're even a minority of Republicans, according to some surveys, uh, and of Democrats. And in fact, it's sometimes even the, the same percentage of Republicans and Democrats, uh, which is mm-hmm. a very small percentage. But they, they, there are still too many of them. And if, if there are people like that in your circles, you know, it, let them know that that you disagree. Talk to your friends and family, write op-eds, write letters to the editor. Um, just knowing that someone they know and, and respect and trust uh, has a different view may help to change their minds. Um, and, you know, the other part that we, we find on these issues is that the people who want to ban books, for instance, that's their number one issue. That They wake up and every day and, they, and dream about banning books. And the people who don't want to ban books, who are the vast majority of Americans, you know, it, it's hard to get them to see it as as being as important as it is to the people who want to do the bans. And that's the reason that these things happen. There is an intensity gap 
between the people who want to carry out these bans and the people who don't. So if you are a person who does not want to ban books, uh, you know, make this a priority. Go and, you know, go and talk to your, your local library or your school library and see if there are things you can do to help. You know, go, go and you know, talk to people who agree with you and, and, and you know, see if they're, they're interested in helping or becoming active. Um, because that's really what's going to turn the tide here. We, we have to see some real shifts in, 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 in what uh, those of us who don't support censorship prioritize and how we go about our business and go about our days. Um, and that's really what's going to turn the tide, I think. Okay, everybody, you heard it here. You, you heard it from Jeremy Young, who is with PEN America, and he is doing this fabulous work of identifying for all of us the attacks on reading, on writing, on teaching, on curriculum, on free thought all around uh, this country. And as I say, he and I talk when things get bad, and we're getting to know each other pretty well. So uh, we all need your help out there. Jeremy, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Always great to talk to you, Evan. All right, everybody, we will be back after the news. Stay tuned. You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisentraff on WCPT 820. All right. I, uh, I thought that was a fascinating conversation we just had with Jeremy and Penn about censorship. Um, and this slide that our country is having at the hands of a small but determined minority who are going to impose very restrictive will on the rest of us. Um, and you know what? There's another much more empowered small minority that's doing just that. And, and to talk about that, I've asked Jordan Smith to join us. Jordan is a senior reporter for The Intercept. And for those of you who don't know, The Intercept is a, an award-winning news organization, and it really gives journalists the support legally and editorially to spend their time hunting down corruption and injustice. Um, it's not an uncontroversial organization, but it's an important one. And Jordan has launched a new podcast uh, with The Intercept on a topic we talk a lot about here, namely the, my words, not hers, illegitimate and partisan Supreme Court. Jordan, welcome. Thank you for having me. So um, it, it's obvious to me, but I think you should say it out loud. Why did you decide that this is the time to have a podcast on the Supremes and the cases they're hearing? Well, um <laughs> I'm, I've long been sort of a court dork, but it, it sort of occurred to me last summer when the Dobbs decision came down, which basically did away with 50 years of abortion rights, that it really hit people like a bomb um, that were suddenly paying attention to a court that, you know, a lot of people just as a routine sort of proposition don't necessarily pay that much attention to. And so it, I thought that uh, it seemed like the right time to do a little mini series on our main podcast, which is called Intercepted, to kind of break down some of the controversial cases that are before the court this term, to sort of explain how the court's been doing its business and what sort of we're in for. Because the Dobbs decision really was very much the sort of start of something bigger that is kind of an undertaking of this new court. So we figured it was a good time to do that. Well, I'm glad you did. Um, I, I guess I don't think it was the start. I think they've been at it for a while. All these decisions that have 
uh, uh, come against voting rights, for instance, or uh, gerrymandering, um, or even money in politics. Uh, they, go, they go back to Citizens United, I think, or even a gun decision. Suggest that this just sort of started. I think it's more obviously, yes, absolutely. Citizens United, Shelby County is a huge case mm-hmm. of the way we're voting rights act. So it's not as though there's just a very long term conservative legal agenda that has been playing out, as you suggest, for a very long time. But but now that we have this super majority, super conservative, super majority court, it's sort of like, you know, it's kind of like buckle up, buttercup, because you're in for, you know, a bumpy ride. The agenda gets accelerated. Right. And so they yes, are able absolutely. to. <laughs> feeling a little free will in here. So it's, you know, uh, to the extent that people haven't been paying attention, I think that's unfortunate, but it's also understandable. But we also think that, you know, right now it's a good time to, to, to kind of rally the attention that the court has been getting since Dobbs, because, you know, frankly, Dobbs caught a lot of people's attention and frankly caught a lot of people by surprise, I think, in a way that sort of surprised me. Um, but, you know, that's because I pay attention to that stuff and, and I'm sort of baked in that area of the law. Well, I hope we didn't wake up too late because they're considering as we speak, uh, you know, this crazy case, uh, Monroe, this uh, independent state legislature doctrine case. Um, uh I, I guess before we get into that, I'm, I'm almost at a loss for words. I'm so angry about the court. Um, to me, they've lost their legitimacy. They act more um, in a partisan than in a jurisprudential manner. And um, we were warned in the Federalist Papers about partisan courts. We were warned um, by every, you know, by John Locke, by everyone who was sort of a theorist that goes into our government, that the kind of court that we have finally ended up with is a direct, well, they use the word tyranny. They say it's a path to tyranny. And I wonder if 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 that's what you see when you see a court that is willing to impose draconian and unpopular law um, on a democracy. Oh, well, I mean, I am sort of fully in the camp of folks who think that the legitimacy is gone. Um, and, you know, and it is, you're, you're absolutely right. We have very much um, a result oriented court, right? It's, they, you know, because I think what's, what's important to understand about the court, and I'm sure, you know, is that they really set their own agenda, right? Like, there are certain ways in which things can compel them to take cases that are, are sort of the normal way in which things happen. But, but they get to set the agenda. So, for example, you know, the independent state legislature thing, I, I hate calling it a theory. You know, there was no reason to take that case. They reached out and grabbed it. And what we're seeing increasingly on their docket are cases where, you know, the lower courts, there's no sort of real split going on. There are some notable exceptions to that. Um, but so the law is fairly stable below. So there's no, and the, and the results that sort of came out of the lower courts are consistent with the law and the way the laws have been applied to precedent, for example. So they're really sort of reaching out and grabbing, you know, sort of pet projects. And that's where, you know, you really start to think, hmm, yeah, I don't really know that we're very legitimate here. The other thing I would say about that 
is that you have this court, this majority, that, you know, sort of has longed from that to be very sort of rooted in history and text and this whole idea of original meaning, et cetera, et cetera, yada, yada. But, you know, when you look at Dobbs, for example, you see that that's simply not true because Dobbs and the entire sort of equal protection uh, promises of the Constitution come out of the Reconstruction era, where you have a suite of amendments to the Constitution, which are designed um, to, to, you know, uh, create equality uh, at, in, in first step among former slaves. But, but baked into particularly the 14th Amendment is entirely If you look at the history of it and you appreciate that, you understand that what it's doing is providing bodily autonomy to individuals. And and, and important in that notion, and given the context, was the right to have a family of your choosing. And and yet when you see Samuel Alito's Dobbs opinion, it's just sort of like 14th Amendment, 14th Amendment, nothing there to see. And just kind of goes to these other sources that are just completely off point, so to speak. So, you know, I just have, I've, you know, not that I ever really bought their whole history text line, but you can see that it's just not simply not true in practice. You and I are going to get along just fine. Know <laughs> where you've been while well, we've been having these conversations for a year. I mean, they want to go back to a pre-Civil War constitution. I think that is um, terrifying, but that seems to be what they have in mind. Um, um, but Let's talk about for a minute this notion that they respect history and that they have some sure. sense of original meaning. It's my understanding that in the in, that none of them, since Scalia sort of said or Bork sort of said, we're going to go back to this what the original intent was. That a historian has never been hired by the court. That they hire very smart uh, young. Um, uh, students out of Harvard and Yale, almost entirely uh, law students to be their clerks. Um, They've got some great ability to do research in law, but none of them is a historian. So if they cared about what anybody's original intent was or what the original intent of the country was when they ratified the amendment, I I just don't think they're even hiring for the skills to answer that question. It just says in big, bold, green letters, you know, like the ones that say cash station over an ATM, it just says liar over the court when they say that they care about history. Yeah, you know, and and on that point, you know, I don't know about hiring a staff position. I actually don't know. And that's a really interesting question that I'd never thought about. But, you know, routinely cases get filed and, you know, interested parties file amicus briefs, which are a friend of the court briefs, as I'm sure you well know, but they, they are scholars and, you know, other often sometimes interested parties for on a variety of reasons all across the scale who are writing to the court about the issues, um, you know, that are at play in any given case. And they are supposed to be going to those for some some information beyond what they understand and beyond perhaps the four corners of the briefs of the individual parties. And, you know, you, if you scroll through these dockets, I mean, there are so many amicus briefs. And to your point, in a lot of these cases, you see uh, the briefs of historians who are trying to set the record straight and trying to provide that context. And I just have yet to really see in, in recent memory any of that sort of appear in, in an opinion um, or in an argument that I've heard in any meaningful way, if that makes sense. Right. In oral arguments recently, we heard Katanji Brown Jackson try and do that on, on some of the yeah. affirmative action stuff. 
right, for the first time saying, wait a minute, I'm sorry, banning slavery has nothing to Are you kidding me? <laughs> yeah, yeah, she's been great. You know, I mean, it's, 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 you know, we're in a position where we have um, three women and the minority, but the arguments this session, are, um, this sitting, have been really kind of remarkable in that um, there's been, they've been very vocal to the extent that they can do anything. It's sort of shine this light, right? They just don't have a ton of power in terms of shaping the docket in terms of, you know, getting majority opinions unless you can cleave two votes off, right. Of the, of the six, six judge side of the court. But to your point about uh, Jackson, she's been wonderful and she's, she's really been, bringing that history energy um, in a lot of cases, in, in, in um, a number of cases, she's been sort of rapping on the door with some history knowledge and bringing it. And it, I, I don't know, I, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. I think there's a way in which being that vocal about it and repeatedly, she'll come back to points over and over again in the arguments. So there's like making it clear, <laughs> right? What's going on? Um, how that actually translates into opinions, I suppose we'll see once they actually start really issuing opinions, which we don't really have save for one at this point. So it'll be interesting right. to see how, how she evolves as a jurist, but also how this sort of very vocal, very laser-like focus to the, what kind of influence it might have on those opinions. Yeah, I bet a court that has said, you know, we'll park our legitimacy somewhere else. We are a ruling body, not a jurisprudential body. And we have the majority and everybody else be damned. Um, I don't expect right. it to have, I, I expect it to be uh, all in the dissents, which are beautiful to read. But, um, yes. right, as I mean, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg said, well, it's future law. But that's cold comfort to anybody living now. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. I mean, it's, it's, you know, unless you make changes to the court, which are absolutely possible to do, we are kind of stuck in, in a loop right now. Unless, you know, I, I don't know, unless something changes, unless somebody leaves the court or unless somebody, you know, sort of, you know, evolves and moderates their views. We're kind of stuck in this loop for a while. What does it mean, though, to say that the court is illegitimate? I, on the right, um, uh, Illinois, where I live, passed a ban on assault weapons. Governor signed it. Um, but there are sheriffs in the state who have said, yeah, I'm not buying it. That's illegal. I'm not doing it. I won't enforce the law. Right. And, and, you know, of course, then so, so there is, that's a form of civil disobedience. It's more common on the right. I mean, I, 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 what are the uh, what are the options in a in a society when the highest court has gone rogue, um, still wears the robe, still has all the trappings of a jurisprudential body, but walks away from that in its function in our democracy? That's really a good and difficult question to answer, right? I mean, I'd be lying to you if I said I hadn't had the little daydreams where I decide that I'm not going to do anything the Supreme Court says I should do anymore. So, you know, those are those are pure fantastical daydreams, right? Because I'm not going to get very far, practically speaking. But I, I do think, and I listen to the, the smart people on this, is that really you have to start, you know, at, at the ground on up and, and have the kind of ground game that conservatives have had forever, um, on at state and local levels, because there's two pieces of this. One is transforming the Supreme Court, right? There is a way to add seats. There is a way to create 
um, term limits, for example. So there are some structural controls that could be put in on that level. But I think that the bigger piece of this is to sort of look at the ground game that conservatives have had for decades, right? Um, and, and take that and, and as progressives have to be as committed to, you know, banging on the door every year, every year, every year, even if you don't sort of win. So on, what I mean by that in terms of the court is, is bear with me for a second, is that, you know, a lot of things that people forget is that the Supreme Court and the U.S. Constitution, you know, are the floor, not the ceiling, right? The states have, these are the bare protections that states have to provide to their residents. But each state can go far further. And so it's important to, you know, sort of run candidates for for state courts and really beef up your state jurisprudence, right? Like, I think that's incredibly important and often overlooked. And, for example, before the Dobbs decision came down, when one row and, and its progeny were still in effect and protecting abortion rights, most of the litigation involving abortion bans or various other kinds of laws restricting access would go through federal court. And there was an obvious reason for that. There were exceptions to that. But that's generally the path it took. Well, that is cut off now. And so all of that litigation, except for, again, there are exceptions, but, but, but the majority, the bulk of that litigation has moved back to the states because there are a lot of state constitutions and some of them in places you might not think would be like this, um, that have far greater protections for privacy, for personal autonomy. And so there's where we're seeing the action. So I think, you know, to the extent that I can answer that very difficult question, those are the two areas that I think are really important to focus on is, is sort of creating reforms to the Supreme Court and then really working to beef up state laws to protect people um, greater than the Supreme Court is willing to do. So, um very good counsel. I mean, in the uh, Iowa had those protections in their constitution. Their Supreme Court eroded them. We have a major Supreme Court election in Wisconsin coming up. Could def- decide the next presidential election. Enormously important, um, and it's and it is, um, you know, uh, I. Uh, I uh, Hard fought, going to be very hard fought election in Wisconsin, and in, and uh, could determine the outcome of the whole democracy. And and on the court itself, Biden put in place a Supreme Court commission to come up with recommendations uh, that might uh, restore the legitimacy of the court. And they wrote a beautiful report outlining. I don't know. I read it. I can't remember eight. I think maybe more um, interesting reforms. Um, but they recommended none. They couldn't get to agreement on any, and they included things like adding seats or adding term limits or even saying, you know what, we're not going to have a permanent Supreme Court. Every year we're going to pick randomly from the group of federal judges and have them sit there and do this year's Supreme Court work so that the next year they have to live with their decisions back down in the courts with everybody else. So there were there were a lot of interesting, right, and, and – um, there are a lot of interesting cases, um, uh, but very hard to get any of it passed unless you have a strong congressional majority, which, uh, uh, you know, nobody has right now. Right, right, right. So it's definitely tricky. And you're right about Wisconsin. You know, and the thing about the Wisconsin Supreme Court election is like 
people need to go. It's, it's one of those, you know, sort of one-off spring elections that that court, Kate, that court, that seat, that incredibly important seat in Wisconsin could be decided by like, you know, a thousand votes. So uh, I think from what I understand, there's tons of mobilizing on the ground. It's going to be really interesting to see how that plays out. And I, I do get the sense from the people that I talk to who are kind of on the ground there and have been on the ground there that there's a lot of energy to push. And I just hope that, that it works out because you're right. There's a lot riding on it. Yeah. Well, Democrats are very well organized in Wisconsin. I mean, both Wisconsin and Michigan have fabulous, fabulous uh, Democratic organizations, new, unlike the ones that were in the past that rethought what it means to do state level politics. And they have a chance of stopping um, the takeover there, um, which would be great. Really great. Yeah. Um, Part of your podcast, the first one, and I only listened to the first one, I understand you have a second one out. And everybody should know, it's really fascinating. Um, Before we're done, we'll tell you how to get it. You should listen. Um, uh, A, Jordan is fabulous. B, her guests are really good. And C, you know, these cases are worth knowing about. Um, But you also talked about John Roberts and his argument, spurious, pompous, whatever you want to call it, um, that Americans cross a line when they say the court might not be legitimate. And I think it's worth rehearsing that argument again for everybody here. Yeah, I mean, that's really Roberts and and Samuel Alito, even perhaps more obnoxiously, um, kind of suggest that, you know, it's fine to disagree with their opinions. It's fine to do that. That's totally cool. But what's not cool is suggesting that they're not legitimate, which is crazy. In the first episode of our, our podcast, we talk about that a little bit, right? And it's yeah. and it's just I agree with my guests from that, which is like, that's crazy. You are you're telling people it's just an institution of government like any other, right? And it, it has a notion of itself that is far more lofty and, and it needs to get over it because you can't tell people that they cannot, you know, question your functioning. That's just bananas. But they feel that way because, you know, the court has been, it is sheltered in a way. And I don't think that that's not an important feature, but the problem is it has no oversight over itself. It's like nine individual people kind of running around and, and they sort of act as this, you know, it's a little fiefdom, right? And, and they have really, you know, drank the Kool-Aid, so to speak. And so far as all the pomp and circumstance and all the sort of reverence around the institution of the court has really gone to their heads. And they feel like they can tell us and how, how to behave and how to think about them when simultaneously, you know, they are making decisions that impact everybody's lives and increasingly sort of restrict the ways in which various groups of us are allowed to live. And I just find that whole argument just incredibly arrogant and just, you know, another to me indication that they are illegitimate, right? Wouldn't accept that, you know, we wouldn't accept that otherwise. They took McCain-Feingold, two senators who are no longer in the Senate, a Democrat and a Republican, put together a campaign finance law because they knew Right. That money in politics was perverting the politics and the and, and the legislatures, the House and the Senate bipartisan said, this is really a problem for us. In comes John Roberts. Oh, I know better than you. 
You know, you, right. you think that you're not legitimate in saying money's a problem. It's really not a problem. So whoosh, suddenly there's an unlimited dark money in politics, right? So, so my answer to this, and, I, and I'm going to test this with you. We okay. have had since very early in our country, we had, a, we had a question of like, what's the right role for the Supreme Court? And there was a case, a case about uh, a, a patronage hire. Right. And the case was Marbury versus Madison. And it and in the end of that case, way back at the beginning of our country, the Supreme Court said, you know what, we're the ones who decide what's constitutional, period. And everybody has lived with that now for 200 and some years because it worked, because they were legitimate and we needed that function. But with their legitimacy lost, I think it's time to say, you know what, we don't agree with Marbury versus Madison and stop acting like it's the law. And the legislature can say, you know what, you think you get to say what's unconstitutional, but you don't. So we're passing this law and we're telling the president he should carry it out. It has to do with campaign finance and you don't get to overturn it. I mean, I, I think we're at that level of crisis with this court. I, I, I would tend to agree. <laughs> I, I mean, it's I'm dangerous all for, for us. It's worked, right? It's terribly dangerous. It's worked well, mostly well. I mean, with egregious right. examples, right? I mean, I, you know, Dred Scott being high on the list. Um, so, so, but it's worked mostly well for most of the time. But now in a sustained pattern, they're working against the democracy for a minority interest in the country, imposing their will on the rest of us. And I just don't see um, how we respond to it using normal, pe- uh, pretending things are normal. Well, I would agree with you. Um, but, you know, I, 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 I'm, waiting, I'm waiting to see somebody make a move, basically. <laughs> it's just sort of, right. I agree with the, you, but those, make the move. Somebody to make the those move. of you who are listening, Jordan and I didn't practice this in advance. This is the first time we've met, just so we're clear. <laughs> this is not like, you know, collusion. It's just two people talking about our Constitution and how it ought to work. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, um, how, look, I'm seeing running out of time. Oh, my gosh, there's so much I want to talk about. You're going to have to come back. Um, but before then, yeah. tell everybody how they can listen to your podcast. Um, you can go to theintercept.com, and you can do uh, intercept.com slash podcast, or you can just go to intercept.com, and I encourage you to do just go to the homepage and scroll down, and you can look at all our other great work, and then the podcasts uh, land in about the middle of the sort of page as you scroll, and it will be right there. It's, the inter- it's called, uh, the main in- podcast is called Intercepted, and the mini-series that we're doing is called Descent. Good name. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of where we're at, right? (laughs) Yep, yep, yep. All right, well, it was a great pleasure to have you join me in, you know, cold, snowy Chicago. I mean, I'm sure you're in a warmer place, but um, thank you so much. Really appreciated it. Nice to get to know you, and let's do this again, Jordan. Well, thank you. I I would love that, and um, yes, thank you so much for having me. It was great. Okay, everybody, we're going to take a quick break. Um, when we come back, Ruth Bengott will join us and we will talk about more about autocracy in the U.S. Stay tuned. You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisentraff on WCPT 820. Okay, welcome back. And I am thrilled to be joined once again by 
uh, Professor Ruth Benyat. She's a professor of history and Italian studies at NYU. You've seen her on MSNBC and other places. She is an expert on authoritarianism and threats to democracy around the world. She's the author of a, a, a fabulous book, Strong Men from Mussolini to the Present, which you know, it's like it exposes the handbook of, I guess, illiberal, corrupt, violent, big lying, macho strategies that tyrants use to gain and hold power. And she's done all of us this enormous service by coming on shows like this tirelessly all over the country, um, having her own Substack newsletter, which you should read called Lucid. And it's a community. She invites people to talks to help us see this tragedy that's unfolding right in front of us. Ruth, welcome back. Thank you. I'm delighted to be back. Last night, my family and I, we went to see an absolutely fabulous uh, performance of Cabaret, the musical, which takes place, you know, right at the transition when a democracy is lost. And I sat there and it was so resonant with our own time, with people being too interested in their own lives to pay attention to the takeover that was going on around them, in that case by the Nazis. And here I think about us, like we're busy, we're not paying attention, and suddenly we have a rogue Supreme Court. We're busy, we're not paying attention, and for the first time in our history, the majority party in the House of Representatives voted against certifying a presidential election. Is it as dangerous a moment as it feels like? It is. And, you know, one of the things that makes it hard today is, um, you know, in, in the 20th century, when you had military coups that, you know, a friend of mine lived through a coup in Uruguay, and he said, you left in the morning, and it was democracy for school, and you came back, and it was a dictatorship. Or what Hitler Mm. did, Hitler took a long time to get into power, unlike his hero Mussolini. And so when he got in, he moved really rapidly with the Enabling Act after the Reichstag fire. So those cases, you you know definitely your rights are being gone. And nowadays, where people come to power through elections, and then they slowly, over time, erode democracy, it can be really hard to know at what point do we start saying this isn't a democracy anymore and this is going towards something else. And so there is also that contributes. And it's not just that we want to be busy or we're in denial. We, we don't have a clear sense of the tipping point anymore because of the way that authoritarianism works today. Uh, well, I feel like we have kind of got to that point. I, you know, um, when maybe that's because I spend so much time talking to people from Wisconsin, right? Where gerrymandering has just, or Ohio, mm-hmm. right? I mean, yeah. um, where the, where you can vote all you want. It doesn't really matter. Yes, and and that's, you know, a very good book on this is by David Pepper, the former head of the um, the uh, Ohio Democratic Party called uh, Laboratories of Autocracy, where he talked about state houses, which which many of us did not pay attention to. Um, Just like the midterm elections, many people didn't bother much about the midterm elections. And so one one symptom 
and and this is a good part. I think people are um, hugely aware of the importance of what goes on locally and state, you know, how it makes a huge difference. And also um, that, uh, you know, just that these processes that we took for granted, that every election matters, and also these elections that are decided by very few votes matter. But the reason this matters is that we are in this strange, I sometimes tweet that it's the twilight zone, because we're a bipartisan, you know, political system, which is fairly rare in the world. And we've got one party, which is solidly anchored in democracy and progressive, and the other party, which I believe and I argue often has left democracy and is now uh, has now embraced autocratic ideals and also methods like election denial. And so we can speak out. We and we have now a Democratic president, but the other party is acting in an autocratic manner. So let's unpack that. Very unusual. Yes. 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 It's an unusual situation in the world. Um, and we've done this before, and David Pepper is a regular guest and a fabulous guy. But let's you and I spend a minute and tell everybody what those autocratic methods are, right? So lying, propaganda, certainly one of them, coercion, we're seeing that. What, like, what's, the, what's the playlist yeah. look like? So, so if we look at just what Trump did, he... When he came in and he signaled on what, what autocrats do today is while they're running for office, they start letting the public know that they are not going to be Democrats with a small d. So when Trump um, said in January 2016, very early in his campaign, um, something that may, makes no sense for a candidate to say this, I could stand on Fifth Avenue and shoot someone and I wouldn't lose any followers. And it's like no one in their right mind says that, except if you are trying to cultivate extremists and that you want to tell people that if you get into office, you're going to consider yourself above the law and you're capable of violence. So when he got in, he really he started this profound shift that the GOP was already going toward of political culture so that the other side, uh, Democrats, becomes an enemy and what do you do with an enemy? You lock her up, <laughs> but you lock all of them up. And now this is the this is one symptom where you consider the other the political opponent an enemy, and that's what autocrats do. And then the use of propaganda and lying and and Trump's big lie worked because he had told thirty thousand other lies, uh, and the Washington Post did a tally of that. And so he had already prepped people to not believe in the truth anymore and to hate uh, journalists, researchers, academics, uh, scientists, um, anybody who who believes in facts and objectivity. So so there's these things were going on for four years and they there's many more they degraded a democratic political culture. So that's how we arrive at violence against, you know, intended for Nancy Pelosi and other politicians. We arrive at the big lie, election denial. This has happened over time. And now we're seeing the after January 6th and after we see the real fruits of this. I, I see 
Ron DeSantis in Florida, right? Um, um, putting a sort of military police presence behind uh, so-called voter fraud and, and making a big deal out of arresting, you know, I, people who then he doesn't charge um, or banning books uh, of every kind or you know, reification, you know, treating um, people he doesn't like as things. Um, all of these, all of these humanize us um, and make it possible for a very different kind of politics. Um, but where in your sort of worry meter does the existence of a DeSantis as a state that allows that to happen without horror? How, I, I mean, that just really scares me. I don't know how yeah, else to say and- it. It, well, it, yes, it's terrible. He's he's terrifying. He's he's an extremist, and it, and the big picture thing um, is that. So I talked before about how Trump slowly over four five years, if you count the campaign, mm-hmm. shifted the political culture, shifted voters' expectations of violence. You know, that got them to see violence as perhaps something good when necessary. But another thing that happens is when somebody like Trump comes along or Berlusconi, these kind of charismatic demagogues, they spawn imitators among leadership. And so you, even if they exit, you get these people who have absorbed their lessons. So I've been watching DeSantis for a long time because he, he, from the very beginning when he, you know, he needed Trump when he ran for governor and he made, he made his child's nursery into an altar for Trump. He made us use his infant as a prop in a campaign ad saying he was a diehard Trump defender. And then he proceeded to study Trump and he even um, imitates his hand gestures when Trump like spreads his hands. Yep. And he's trying, he has no charisma <laughs> to Santis, but he tries very, he works very hard at being the man of the people. I, I follow his Instagram. He's constantly going to barbecue joints and bakeries and, you know, photo ops. And he's trying to depict himself in front of crowds. Um, it was very scary. He lo- it was like a demagogue in the masses. He, he's trying things out. And this is all at the level of persona, but he's absorbed all of Trump's lessons, but he also knows that he's supposed to be the disciplined extremist. So he's far too smart to say something like, oh, I could stand on Fifth Avenue and shoot someone. He just wouldn't do that. He's a lawyer, too. Um, so he, so he's more dangerous in that way because he's got 50 billionaires backing him now because they think that he's not as much of a loose cannon. And yet he's equally extremist, and he's making Florida into his a little autocracy and very consciously using Floridians as props. He uses everyone as props to for to stage his presidential you know run when it's time i i I going to change back to Congress for a minute and ask you about them because it's related um FDR gave a speech, you know, on one of his radio talks in the 30s, where he said, um, if democracy doesn't, by peaceful means, show day by day that they're improving the quality of life of ordinary Americans, fascism will take root in our country. And I read that, and then I think about how 
the Congress of the United States, the Republicans of the Congress, do everything they can to make sure that it doesn't do anything. It certainly isn't going to improve our lives when chaos is what they do. Um, and I think it's not an accident. I think it's a strategy when I read uh, that comment by FDRs. Is it possible in your thinking that they're capable of putting our country into financial default in the next few weeks just because of the chaos it'll cause? Uh, unfortunately, yes. Um, there's a reason that Biden, uh, his first uh, press conference he gave as president, he said, we've got to prove that democracy works. And he meant that, I believe, not only globally, but inside the, the states. Because mm-hmm. from Mussolini onward, all of these demagogues and fascists and, and communists, too, their whole thing has been that democracy doesn't work. It's a failure. It leads to chaos and anarchy and crime. And so we need the strong man. You know, Trump's eye alone can fix it. Right. So there is a playbook. And in my book, I, I, my, my example was Chile, the military coup in 1973. But this was a U.S. engineered in part, uh, U.S. backed coup. But the, what they did, they had a democra- democratically elected socialist government, um, Allende. Allende. Aligned, yep. Yes, he was not aligned with 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 Moscow. Um, but they engineered uh, through Kissinger and Nixon a failure of the economy. They had convoys. They had they disrupted the supply chain so people couldn't get food. They had low-level violence of right-wing terrorists um, claiming it was the left. They did everything possible to create a sense of chaos and incompetence. And so that's been going on for a long time with the GOP, where they're trying to depict the Biden regime on the one hand as tyranny. They call it a regime, right? Like the Biden Mm -hmm. regime, between quotes. On the other hand, they're trying to show, they're trying to create chaos, and this is also Steve Bannon's uh, strategy always, uh, that you, you strike at the state, you create chaos, and that creates an appetite for the strong man or whoever it's going to be. Um, but showing democracy is a failure is key, and that's what Putin does too. That's why Putin funds secessionist movements mm-hmm. um, and terrorism. And all of these strongmen have always uh, funded terrorism around the world in other countries and democracies. So you, what you said exactly, you've got your finger on a very, it's very scary, um, but I think that the, the, the things going on around the economy now, I see it in that light. Yeah, I do, too. I mean, I the miracle of the 117th Congress that they did so much good work with such slim majorities. Um, I, I just I can't say enough about Nancy Pelosi and her work. And it may have saved our country. It may have saved the country. Well, the irony, of course, <clears throat> this just fuels the right more is that the Biden administration has accomplished a huge amount like mm-hmm. large-scale legislation, making people's lives better. Um, it, it's astonishing what has been accomplished. And and I also, they know very well what they're up against. And I think the speed at which they have done so much is also because they know what the stakes are. Yeah, I, I, think, I think I'm correct, but I think it was Lenin. Um, you can have an autocrat on the left, after all. 
um, who said the worse, the better, as he was trying to prepare the way for the fall of the czar. Um, and that's really, it's an old handbook. And you are so clear in writing about it. Um, so, but everybody listening, you better get, like, if you're, if you're, by chance, you're, a, you know, not a progressive, you're like an old fashioned conservative, it's like, for gosh sakes, call the Chamber of Commerce and have them call their Republicans in Congress and tell them to get enough people to discharge the debt limit bill from the committee so that it doesn't tank everything. Yeah, and it, it's <laughs> it's very important uh, to have uh, an alliance uh, with business and to one of the things that Ron DeSantis is doing, and I wrote a piece in CNN about people are suing uh, Florida against his intrusions in business, and he's got mm-hmm. this crusade against ESG, you know, environmental, social governance yep. impact. And, and, um, and he went after Disney. And he even went after the Special Olympics. Uh, he, he goes after everyone to show that he, he can. But yes, he even went after. He's gone after many, many corporations under the guise of, of uh, we don't like you know politicized businesses. We don't like big government and business. We don't like corporations getting too much power. But for me, this is you know part of the uh, myth of authoritarianism. Ever since the idea that Mussolini made the trains run on time, there's this myth that they are efficient and that they're good for business. And instead, they plunder businesses, they uh, censor businesses, like, again, DeSantis is trying to interfere what private businesses do, how they train their people. Uh, They don't want them talking about diversity with their own people. Um, So small businesses all over the state have actually uh, sued uh, the government, and that's a story that I want, I wish we heard more about. But the other part is those who are afraid of uh, encroaching authoritarianism, business people can do a lot. People in finance, people in business who have um, authority often and, and connections with uh, centrists and independent voters and conservatives, they can do a lot by speaking out. And there are a mm-hmm. number of... Um, uh, I work with some organizations that are trying to sensitize business to that, that it's good it's good business to stand up for democracy actually oh that's political so violence, smart yes well political violence is is ruinous for the economy also civil strife is ruinous for the economy and we need to do so much more of that let's turn for a minute um, away from my favorite country to a couple that aren't my favorite countries because they're related I mean I, I, Putin and she um, uh, make your point. They have not been so great for business in their countries. Talk, you know, like, talk about yeah. them a little bit. Yeah. So, in in my book, Strongman, I when I did the book, I did I myself was shocked uh, at. Um, I knew, of course, I knew, you know, Russia's kleptocracy um, Mm -hmm. and how uh, all of the state organizations are plundered in a kleptocracy like Gazprom, the enormous energy conglomerate, is routinely actually preyed upon and assets are, it's called exfiltration. The cronies and the oligarchs, they take out the assets and kind of impoverish these state agencies and put the profits into offshore accounts. 
So they're they're, they're stealing. That's what uh, New York New York real estate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I knew that, but what I didn't know is that Putin um, plunders uh, private businesses, and by 2018, one in six businesses privately owned in Russia had been seized by the state, forced to sell at a cheap price. And Bill Browder, whose own hedge fund. (laughs) You're you're reading the notes I'm writing right down as you're talking. (laughs) Yeah. That's so funny. I interviewed him and he said that basically I said, gosh, I didn't know this. I didn't know the scale of this. His book Red Notice is wonderful. Yes. Everybody should read it. To, to understand yeah. how this operates. And he said, basically, if you have a business of any value, the state will come for it. Um, and Turkey, Erdogan does the same thing. He has, uh, he has plundered over $35 billion worth of assets from ordinary Turkish people. So that's a story we need to hear more of. And I myself was not aware of the scope of it um, until I wrote the book. Well, corruption is enormously expensive. Right. Because you then have to maintain the, the you have to maintain the corrupt order where everybody thinks they're getting a piece of something. But at some point you run out of people to take stuff from in order to pass it out to everybody else. You do. And another and the world is actually seeing with the way that uh, Putin's war is unfolding, his, his genocidal attempt, you know, attempt to, to annihilate uh, Ukraine. Um, the As soon as I saw that the Russian army was performing badly because <laughs> I had studied what happened to armies under kleptocrats before, like in Gaddafi. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I thought, Oh, okay, here's what we have. We have an army that has been uh, armed forces that have been plundered by the state that the resources have been, you know, stolen by oligarchs. And so, uh, it's going to probably go badly, and indeed, just like fascist Italy, they've got um, rancid rations, they've got old, uh, badly maintained equipment, they've got um, something I, it's called institutionalized lying, where nobody mm-hmm. wants to speak the truth, and so that's partly why more generals, uh, this is incredible, more Russian generals died in the first few months like mean, for three months of the war than during all of World War II. <laughs> so That's it, it is, yes, there's a lot of crazy. crazy things, but what we're seeing, the world is seeing, um, it's like the curtain is being drawn back on the um, inefficiency, incompetence, and corruption of autocracy. We're getting an amazing um, example of this unfolding before our eyes. We sure are, but people should know they're still very dangerous and they're still killing lots of people. It's not Hogan's heroes. It's it. It's not Hogan's heroes. It's still very dangerous. Well, it's dangerous because when autocrats get into this state where they they blunder, uh, they make mistakes because they don't listen to anyone, and that's my endings chapter. They. Mm-hmm. They become more dangerous because they can't go down like normal. Um, You know, they can't leave office like normal politicians. So they uh, they will go for broke. Look what, you know, the the Nazis, the fascists were all too happy to just let their countries, you know, burn and get ruined. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's what I worry about. Um, 
that it's not you can't negotiate with Putin and he doesn't care about his own people. He hates his own people. And so he doesn't really care what happens to Russia. It's just he only cares what happens to himself. Yeah. Cannon fodder, as another autocrat once said, um, Napoleon. Um, you have Carrie Lake doing the same thing in Arizona. It doesn't matter what her voters said. She's going to fight this fight to the end. This is a, well, what was going through your mind? What was going through your mind when vote after vote, Kevin McCarthy gave away more of the dignity of the House of Representatives to the sort of autocratic core of his party? What was it? I mean, were you watching it in horror? What was, what was, what was that like? I mean, it, it, it for me it was it was it's horrible. I've I, I felt horror, but I wasn't surprised because this is what the party is now. Um, I mean, for since January first, on January seventh, instead of um, disavowing Trump, which many other countries do that, if somebody it just happened, it happened in Peru, right? If somebody tried a self coup and the guy was arrested, you know like within 24 hours. Instead, the GOP doubled down and became much more radicalized. And so they're, they're a party that had it, they were already, as I explained before, under Trump becoming autocratic, but the crime of January 6th, and they're in this huge crime cover-up now um, because they're all complicit in violence. This is so important. It's so important because so many people think January 6th was the end of it. They had their chance. They fought. We beat them. And what you're saying is January 6th was the beginning. The beginning. Yeah. Right. And so things that that were already going on, like um, having unscrupulous people uh, become the new elite in the GOP, it hugely accelerated because of they're all guilty now. They're guilty of crime. And the reason, the reason that um, I see this so clearly is that my initial, you know, books were on fascist Italy. Mussolini it before. The, well, he declared dictatorship after being a prime minister for three years in a democracy because he was uh, part of an, he was being investigated for murder. And mm-hmm. he thought he was going to go down and lose everything. And that's how we got the first fascist dictatorship in history. And so when a party is like in this cover-up mode, they just become extreme, even more extreme. So when I see now we get to, you know, McCarthy giving away, they, they all, all they care about is power. They don't have any ideals anymore. So... Mm-hmm. This this is it, this leads to the kind of bargaining. Of course, McCarthy's going to be Marjorie Taylor Greene's best friend. She she could be vice president or president one day. I, I know that's like sounds insane to many people, but um, no one thought Mussolini would ever be the head of state either, um, and yeah. certainly not Hitler. People had lots of jokes that he was just like a a crazy waiter and. Um, so you just you can never discount these people, which is why we have to mobilize to vote them out. Well, and it is why I am so grateful to you for the tirelessness which you have uh, shown in, in, in not you know on, on hundreds of places like this radio station and TV shows and your own writing 
all over the country to try and save this democracy. And I'm, I'm very grateful to you. Um, and, uh, and I continue to learn from what you write in Lucid. Um, thank you for taking the time to continue to talk with me about this. Thank you for having me on and all that you are doing too. Okay, everybody, that was the fabulous Ruth Ben. You're looking at the big picture with Edwin Eisentraff on WCPT 820. Okay, everybody, welcome back. It's 3 o'clock and still snowing in Chicago. Later this hour, I'm taking your calls at 773-763-9278. So get those wheels turning. I want to hear from you in the second half of the hour. But right now, I am joined once again um, by uh, the fabulous Laura Bellin. She um, is my go-to source for all things Iowa, a journal of journalist of longstanding, a careful observer of her state, and the publisher of Bleeding Heartland, which I recommend to you if you want to get a better view of Iowa. Laura, welcome back. Thanks for having me, Edwin. So this has been a, a painful uh, couple hours of radio here because we've covered uh, uh, growing censorship in America. We've covered uh, some of the behaviors of the Supreme Court. And right before you were on, a woman named Ruth Bengat was on talking about autocracy in the country, uh, all of which was painful. Now I'm coming to your state and I and worried that things are not going to get more cheery in this last, uh, you know, half hour we're talking together. I'm afraid not. Where our legislative session just finished its third week, and they already, the Republican majority's already passed a tremendously damaging bill, uh, a so-called school choice bill, that it's a voucher plan that is going to divert a lot of money over a time from public schools to private schools that can be exclusive. Um, there's no income limit after the second year of the program, so some of the wealthiest families in Iowa who already send their kids to private schools will be getting taxpayer money to keep their kids out of the public school system. And uh, meanwhile, the Republicans are debating an, a very small increase in funding for public schools that would not even be close to matching the rate of inflation in their costs. I, I, I wanna, before we dig deeper into those horrors, I want to just go back to when you and I first talked, I don't know, a year and a half ago. And you were saying, you know, this is an interesting state, but we have abortion protections written into law and we're going to be okay. And, you know, it's a conservative state, but we're not crazy. I feel like the descent into sort of MAGA crazy has been steady and now accelerating all around you while you're you know, sort of trying to hold it together and be sane. I mean, it, the, the change is dramatic. If you live through it, you don't really notice it. But if you disappeared for two years and just showed up today in your state, it would look like a really different place. Yeah, the Republicans have steadily increased their majorities in the Iowa legislature. I do want to clarify that abortion is still legal in Iowa up to about 20 weeks of pregnancy. Right. For right. now, 
We have a pending case before the Iowa Supreme Court. It's not clear how long it's going to stay that way, but uh, for now, abortion is still legal in Iowa. The Republicans, yeah. of course, would like to change that if they could. I mean, the, the basic problem in Iowa is that the large proportion of our electorate it consists of white voters without a college degree, and that is a group that all over the country, and especially in the upper Midwest, has really moved sharply away from the Democratic Party over the last 10 years or so. So we have dozens of counties that voted for Barack Obama that then switched and voted twice for Donald Trump. These are predominantly working-class areas. Some of them were huge Democratic strongholds for decades and are now voting Republican. And the same kind of trend has happened in a number of other states, but some states like Minnesota, they can counter that because they have this large Twin Cities metro area where most of the state's electorate lives. Iowa's largest cities, Des Moines, Cedar Rapids, Quad Cities, they're not nearly as large in terms of as a share of the whole state's population. So it's really troubling for Iowa Democrats, and I've just spent a large part of the day listening to our Democratic Party's state central committee elect a new state chair. It's going to be Rita Hart, and she really has her work cut out for her, and one of her top priorities is going to be focusing on those counties, the formerly Democratic counties that have swung so dramatically toward Republicans, because that is going to be critical for Democrats to start turning things around here. Well, leaving aside the partisan, the Democratic-Republican lens for a moment, just in terms of, I mean, are the policies that are being enacted, like disbanding public education, really, um, uh, privatizing public education, are they, are they, is that what the great majority of Iowans want? No, it's the polling that we have on it. The most recent poll on this school voucher proposal is about a year old, not quite a year old. And it showed that the majority of Iowans don't support that. And the majority of Iowans do think abortion should be legal. I mean, there are a number of issues where people in Iowa still side predominantly with the Democratic Party. But unfortunately, the Republicans have been so successful about uh, using culture war issues to their advantage. And also, they've had a massive financial advantage in most of the key elections here. And it's just really difficult when uh, Republican candidates are talking about caravans at the border or defunding the police. Democrats are socialists. um, And it's difficult for Democratic candidates to break through with their own message. Okay, so now tell us more about the education bill that Kim Reynolds was so happy to sign. Yeah, this was really, it was quite troubling. So the Iowa legislature has been Republican-controlled since 2017. However, our governor was not able to get everything she wanted through the Republican-controlled Iowa House, despite having pretty large majorities. So in 2021 and 2022, she had tried to push versions of this school choice idea, and the Republicans in the Iowa House actually was largely the rural Republicans who thought this would be damaging to their public schools and their districts. So last year, our governor campaigned against several of the sitting Republican lawmakers before the primary. Uh, She campaigned in favor of candidates who supported school vouchers. Four or five of those uh, candidates, the incumbents, lost their primaries. And then there were, they increased their majority in the November election. So going into this session, it was a really open question whether they had the votes in the Iowa House to pass this thing. And they had to change the procedures quite a bit to bypass 
bypass the normal committee process. And there were still quite a few opponents. And as it turned out, nine Republicans voted against it. But they just turned the screws on other Republicans who had been against this voucher plan in the past. The, the gist of it is that Every, the amount that the state spends per pupil in public schools, which now is about $7,600 in Iowa, that money, if parents pull their kids from the public schools and put them in private schools, that money is going to follow the students. So public schools are going to lose funding, and the families are going to get the $7,600 a month. And including families who already have their children in private schools. So it's going to pull a lot of money. It's going to be in the first year, it's going to cost $100 million. And then by the third year, when there's no income limits and everybody in the state is eligible for this, if they can find a spot for their kid in private school, this could be costing $340 million a year. That's a lot of money in the context of Iowa's budget, education budget, will be going to, it's almost like an incentive to pull your kid out of public school and put them into private school. And uh, meanwhile, of course, as, as you know, a lot of private schools, they restrict applicants. They might not accept applicants depending on um, their sexual orientation. They often, private schools don't accept students who have a disability or any kind of special um, IEP for learning. So it's going to be really problematic. And uh, also English language learners very commonly are not able to get into private schools. And so the public schools who take everybody are going to be um, left short of funding because they're going to lose so much money for all the students who are going into the private schools. Does this money follow kids into home schools as well? No, homeschooling was not included in this bill. I know I'm, I'm concerned that that's something they may try to do in the future. There are homeschooling advocates in Iowa who would like to do that. That would uh, just further the decline of rural schools. We have Iowa, we have 99 counties, and 41 of those counties don't even have a single private school. Another 23 of them have just one private school. So practically two-thirds of the counties have either zero private schools or one. The private schools are clustered mostly around the larger metro areas, and so it's really going to be a shift of money away from uh, some of the rural counties toward counties that are already growing and where where the average income is already higher. Uh, If they open it up to homeschooling, I think that would just uh, really quickly lead to the decline of more rural school districts because quite a lot of families would probably pull their kids out of public schools if the state gave them an incentive of $7,600 per child to do that. Yep. So, um, Laura, there's lots of for-profit schools in the U.S. who will flock to Iowa for that money. Right. Yeah, I, mean, you yes, know, I, I, mean, I presume so. There were certainly national interest groups lobbying heavily for this. And so I, I do expect some for-profit schools to pop up. They, the, law, the way they wrote the law, it says that private schools have to be accredited. Uh, and so there is a process going through the Iowa Department of Education, and I don't know all of the details of that process, but I don't think uh, it, it's not like I could just hang put a shingle outside my house and say, I'm a private academy right now, give me your money. There is going to be some kind of accreditation process, but I'm sure there will be uh, lobbying to loosen those rules, and I do expect some for-profit chains to come in here. We do have already a for-profit charter school chain that's trying to open in the Des Moines area. Yeah, I, it, it, 
they're very good at regulatory processes. And um, I expect by next year, there'll be a dozen of them around your making political contributions um, and taking tax dollars to do it. Yeah, and there was a dark money group running a, a very heavy, heavy TV advertising campaign earlier this month featuring our governor. Group doesn't disclose its donors, so we don't know who in state or out of state was funding a lot of TV ads featuring our governor talking about how great the school choice is going to be for kids. Wow. What was the name of the group, the Dark Money Group? Um, it is the uh, Iowa – okay, I'm just going to – I need to double-check this now. It's a 501c4 that has a very similar name to a super PAC. <laughs> so Priorities yeah. for Iowa Incorporated. Uh-huh. There's also a Priorities for Iowa super PAC, but technically the group running the TV ads was the 501c4. But, again, they don't disclose their donors. We have no idea. It must have been a very expensive – they, they said it was a six-figure ad campaign, but I wouldn't be surprised if they spent close to a million dollars because the ads were just everywhere. Okay, and for those of you in Chicago who, who are saying a million dollars of TV buys about four seconds, oh, yeah. it buys a lot in Iowa. In Iowa, it's a lot. We have cheap TV, especially, I mean, the Des Moines market covers a very large area of the state. Des Moines and Cedar Rapids market combine those cover probably close to two-thirds of the counties and it's much cheaper than chicago yeah so so okay so what's going on um in the state now we've had this republican rule how's it going i mean are people's lives getting better is the economy better than all of its neighbors you know, they, I mean, when last we talked, they were going to incent people to take jobs by, you know, cutting unemployment insurance, even though that's not who wasn't taking the jobs. How's it going? What's going on? I mean, it's not going well. Our growth lags most of our neighbors and most of the country, both, I mean, job growth and overall GDP growth. We have this ongoing workforce shortage, which everyone knows is due to primarily to two things, low wages and lack of affordable child care. And then probably a third factor would be lack of affordable transportation. And the Republican leadership of the state have done nothing really to address any of those things. There's just, uh, they're always trying to just make the labor regulations looser. And as you mentioned last year, they passed a bill that reducing unemployment benefits that people can collect. But that's if most people who are not working right now are not collecting unemployment benefits. There are a lot of people who just can't afford to go on the job market at all. So, no, I mean, it's we're not doing that well. I think the governor has touted a lot of investments and programs. Most of that money is coming from the federal government through the American Rescue Plan or there's still some CARES Act money, COVID relief money that's filtering through. But, I mean, this is the thing. The Iowa schools are not performing better under Republican rule. We have the health care system is not getting better. We've had a number of hospitals close their labor and delivery wards. There are, are some nursing homes that have closed. I mean, it's the quality of life is not better. And uh, yet, you know, Republicans, I mean, the governor mentioned the shortage of doctors in some communities, and of course her answer to that is tort reform, limiting mal- medical malpractice awards. Well, that doesn't have anything to do with the problem. Medical malpractice insurance rates in Iowa are very low, much lower than surrounding states, and they're not going up. The problem is that there are other reasons 
people, doctors don't want to practice in Iowa. And of course, the specter of an abortion ban is a big one that makes OBGYNs not want to go anywhere near the state. So, Laura, I don't, I mean, I don't get it. But again, I live in a big urban area. So it's hard for me to wrap my head around this. When does reality hit the people who live there such that they say, you know, maybe those guys in big cities like Chicago who might once in a while, you know, walk by a place that's, that's, I don't know, having a drag show, like maybe that's bad for me, but the stuff going on in my state really hurts me more. When does that, when does that happen? I mean, that's a big question. And I think especially since the Republican trifecta here has passed tax cuts that are very skewed toward the wealthy. Now they've passed this school voucher plan that is going to disproportionately benefit the wealthy. And meanwhile, when the American Rescue Plan money runs out around 2025, 2026, and these tax cuts are fully phased in, I mean, that's when a lot of people think that their people may start to notice that, wow, things are really not good. And who's been running the state for the last decade is basically Republicans. But as I mentioned, the Republican politicians are really good at diverting attention onto wedge issues. I mean, we have anti-LGBTQ issues, bills related to schools. We have anti-CRT, which, of course, doesn't exist. And there, there are no Iowa schools teaching critical race theory, but it's still something that Republicans like to demagogue about. And I just don't really know when people, I mean, it's going to take a major culture change. Of course, you're on a progressive commercial radio station, but Iowa doesn't really have any progressive commercial radio at all. There are, but commercial radio is completely dominated by conservative voices in all of the markets in Iowa. So that's another thing the Republican Party doesn't even have to pay for. They just get 365 days a year. They have talk radio hosts basically telling listeners, thousands of listeners, that the Democrats are elites who hate your way of life and hate your religion and whatever we supposedly want to do, right, want to take your money and give it to black and brown people. I mean, it's just, it's a really difficult information environment for Iowa Democrats. Well, uh, I guess at some point in a democracy, people have to have to make judgments for themselves or they lose the democracy. In Iowa, it doesn't seem like people are making decisions um, about policy. They're making decisions about who they hate. They hate people like me. I get it. I mean, I live in a big city. I am perfectly tolerant of everybody. Love the diversity in my city. Love it. Um, So I guess I'm the, you know, people like me are the enemy, but I have nothing to do with governing in Iowa. Right. Like what's what, right? So, but when do people there go? Wow. I mean, I want to take. I want. I mean, how are your roads? I mean, are they at least the infrastructure still holding up? Well, There's the a lot of federal money for that. Great. I mean, the roads. We actually have a lot of structurally deficient bridges. We're going to be getting money thanks to the federal government's infrastructure plan. But uh, the, yeah. I mean, the roads in Iowa are not even that great, truthfully. And I, I will say the one thing, the Republicans are very emboldened and, and are really governing as if they don't think there's any chance they could ever lose another election in Iowa. But this year they did back off from pursuing a state constitutional amendment on abortion after a very similar 
measures failed in Kansas last summer and in Kentucky in November. And I thought that was interesting. That was one of the few times I've seen Iowa Republicans acknowledge that what they're trying to do is really unpopular and maybe we shouldn't encourage Iowans to vote on, on this issue specifically. Right. But privatizing schools, no problem. Right. Tax and cuts that is going to be wealthy, I mean, no problem. Many Democrats believe that in a few years when this starts causing more rural schools to close and fold, that this could be an issue that helps turn things around electorally for Democrats and some of the smaller communities. I mean, we'll have to see. Democrats are really far down in these districts that are outside the larger cities and suburban areas, so it would take a lot. I mean, something that moves the needle five or ten points wouldn't really be enough to get allow Democrats to be winning these districts again. But in smaller towns, people love their public schools, and the the public schools are a really important part of community life. So it is possible that over time this bill that they just passed could backfire on them. But it's going to be really difficult to undo. I mean, once people start getting used to getting big checks from the state government every year to send their kids to private school, that will be difficult to reverse. I, I, I think we should introduce your legislators to Sam Brownback. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> right. I mean, and I mean, everybody is listening. He was the governor of Kansas who who experimented, the, the, just like Iowa did, with the Republican economic playbook. Let's just cut everybody's taxes and we'll cut services and see what happened. And they couldn't keep the public schools open. They just That's couldn't right. do it. They, they, they couldn't That's do right. it. And he got thrown out. They all got thrown out. I'm laughing because right after or the last year, they passed this huge tax cut, flat tax for income taxes and lots of other changes that primarily benefit wealthy people. And they passed it in time for our governor, Kim Reynolds, to deliver the Republican response to Joe Biden's State of the Union address. And when everybody on the right was touting her as rising star, and that was basically the frame of the piece I wrote about it, that Iowa Republicans are repeating the mistakes of Kansas and Louisiana, Bobby Jindal the governor of Louisiana did something very similar, massive tax cuts. And, you know, Kim Reynolds should ask herself, what's Sam Brownback doing right now? What's Bobby Jindal doing right now? Because they just drove their states into the ground, basically. Right. But people, the answer to what they're doing right now is they've gone to work for people for whom they made a lot of money with tax cuts and they're doing just fine. Thank you very much. Just not in the government. But they're yeah. not governing the state, and they it didn't it wasn't a springboard for them to be to successfully run for president. I mean, they did yep. try. Yep, yep. Well, um, uh, what's going on that is good <laughs> right now? <laughs> That's really tough. I mean, this is in the environment we're in with Republican supermajorities. I mean, I'm just looking for any small possible win. I think there are some local governments that are doing good things uh, with good energy ordinances, good uh, efforts to make cities more walkable, better public transit. I mean, the state legislature isn't helping them on that, but they're trying. Uh, There are a few opportunities, even with this right-wing control of the legislature, to try to get good bills passed. One that I have my eye on is something that would allow licensing of professional midwives. Iowa is one of 13 states. Mm that doesn't mm-hmm. have licensing of midwives. And that's something that would be, it would actually be really good for women in urban areas, rural areas, immigrant women. So it's something where it might be possible. I mean, like I said, we're well, particularly if you're going to, the OBGYNs are going to leave. 
you're going to need somebody, right? I mean, you're right. getting and rid I of mean, the hospitals. Yeah. Yes. There, I mean, there are just a lot of harmful things going on, and, and I keep telling people just uh, look for any small wins that you can find. And it is really tough. I mean, it, in, I was at an event this week for Iowa Safe Schools, which is an LGBTQ advocacy group that is. It started out as an anti-bullying initiative, and they've got their hands full because Republicans are introducing so many terrible bills targeting especially trans kids, but all LGBTQ kids. But uh, on in cer- certain local communities, things are much more accepting and welcoming to students now than they were, let's say, when I was growing up in the 1980s. So there, there are still people trying to make things better, and that's about all I can say. I mean, it's a pretty grim environment right now in Iowa. Well, um, yeah. So... It's so good that you're there, that you're watching this, that you're sharing it with your fellow Iowans and the rest of us. And, um, you know, I hate to say it, but they'll hit bottom at some point. And if we still have a democracy, they'll be able to make different decisions. Well, I say I'll be over here documenting the atrocities, and I I hope someday to have a Democratic administration in Iowa to hold accountable because I would love to do that. When I started writing a Bleeding Heartland in 2007, there was actually a Democratic trifecta in this state, and so I I consider myself a progressive voice. You know, I'm happy to be tough on all sides, and I, I wish we just had a little more balance in our politics right now. Yeah, we don't, but... Um... It's great that you're there and reporting on it. Okay, do you have a flower at least this month? <laughs> I have an Iowa Wildflower Wednesday series, but I usually put it on winter hiatus. I will say that okay. I had a couple of years ago, somebody wrote a really uh, nice post about ice and snow on winter wildflower plants on the prairie. And mm-hmm. sometimes you can go, some people who are very skilled can ID quite a few plants, native plants, even during the winter weather like this that we're having. But sometime yeah. in April or May, I'll bring back my wildflower series. I've profiled about 250 different species so far. Well, the good news is it's a great state for a dog. <laughs> That's true. And my dog has been surprisingly quiet throughout the course of this interview. So that's it. I mean, in in many ways, it is still a good place to live, and that's. It's just so sad to see the leadership turning things in the wrong direction. Because when I look at what's happening, what some progressive leaders are doing in places like Illinois and Minnesota, and just think, imagine if Iowa's leaders were trying to make the quality of life here better for everyone, uh, rather than more difficult, you know, rather than better for the people who already have privilege and harder for the people who are disadvantaged. Yeah. Well, that's the last word. It's always a pleasure to catch up. Thank you very much, Laura, for your time. Oh, thanks so much for having me on. Anytime. All right, everybody. We are going to take a break, and then I'm taking your calls at 773-763-9278. I'll be waiting for you right after this commercial. This is WCPT 820, where facts matter. You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisentraff on WCPT 820. Okay, everybody, as I promised, I'm taking your calls at 773-763-9278. Hello, Dave. Hey, Adeline. Can you hear me? Perfectly. Okay. I didn't, I, hey, on these national archives, and I'm asking for these uh, 
former presidents and VPs and whoever for those documents on that. Um, first off, VP Prince did it correctly. He had, you know, he admitted right away. He didn't let it drip, 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 and then all of a sudden now you're finding more and more. He he owned up real fast on it. But I um, kind of find this interesting. Last night I was watching, it was one of these, an older Dick Cavett show, and he happened to have had Jack Anderson on. You remember Jack Anderson, that columnist? I do. He ran, yeah, yeah. Well, ironically, what he spoke about was that he said that uh, when President Lyndon Johnson, before he left the White House, he scooped up all of these documents and stuff that he came on about the Vietnam War and took it with him. So <laughs> perhaps they got to go way back, you know, 60 years now. You know, I don't know what yeah. kind of... Uh, with these directors and stuff of the National Archives, I, they pretty, sound pretty incompetent. And, you know, they should be doing, uh, you know, audits on that place or something. You know? Yep. Well, they've gotten better than they were back um, when Lyndon Johnson was there. I mean, the truth is uh, it's very hard to be working until the very last day and then do what you need to do to separate uh, uh classified from unclassified documents and we cla we overclassify so almost every document that they see is classified it's a crazy uh, system but nonetheless they have to do a better job of complying and yep. um i think the only one who hasn't really complied who hasn't said we're going to do everything we can to um comply with the archives and their requests is trump who said Nope, don't have them. Oh, I still have them. Well, I don't have any more. Oh, I still have them. I'm not looking. They're mine. Right. So there's a big difference between how everyone um, has behaved. Um, uh, and that would be, right, but, uh, you know, everyone. These people, Trump. these people ain't using the skiff, you know, like in this case, like they said, Johnson took all of these ones home, you know, to his uh, Texas ranch or whatever. And it's like, um, I don't know. It's uh yeah, well, they. I think they're. I think they're better than they were back then, for sure. And um, I do think they use the skiff for stuff that belongs in the skiff. Um, but yeah, there's work to be done. No question about yeah. it. No I question about it. About them, you know, the, these pages and these aides. They're not. I don't think they're uh, got top secret. You know, class. No, they can't see the stuff. No, they're not allowed to see it. Yep. You know, they're stuffing their fit. You don't think Johnson or any of these presidents and that are packing the boxes themselves, do you? Uh, no, but uh, usually they have attorneys who have who are allowed, you know, and when they and when they find something that's marked classified, they're supposed to set it aside for someone who's allowed to see it and they're not supposed to read it. That's why they're in those well, folders. I find that kind of interesting, though, anyway. Yep, I do, too. We're off. We get to the others, Edwin. Good talking to uh, you. Th thank you for calling. Really appreciate it. Well. Uh, uh, thank you. Jim, what's on your mind today? Hi, Edwin. Uh, the media is champing at the bit. Uh, all the radio announcers, Trump is in New Hampshire, undaunted, un, uh, no, no compunctions on his part, no impervious to the law. They can't wait for him to run. It looks like he's going to win the nomination easily. And my suggestion is I wish he could pick Michael Flynn as his vice president because it would flush him out into the open. I'd like to see Flynn on TV every night explaining 
why the Proud Boys and the five percenters and the three percenters should be well armed and keep us Democrats in line in case we get out of line. Anyway, you have a great weekend. Thank you, Wendy. Thank you. Uh, can you imagine what an appalling sight that is? Right. But uh, instead, it may be Trump and Kerry Lake, equally appalling, but different. Right. Un- unimaginable. But look, everybody who's listening, if you were paying attention to the last few hours, you know, well, it's like the frog in the boiling water. Right. We're just slowly getting hot around us and people aren't noticing as they should. January 6th was a radicalizing moment for the right, not a come to their senses moment. They they, they can they have enough power to cause really terrible problems for all of us. And the worse the problems, the more people are going to look for solutions that are not democratic. We have an enormous danger that we are facing. And I know the patriots who are listening are going to stand up and fight back. Um, uh, let's see. Uh, Brian, you're next. Hello, Edwin. Hope you're doing well. Uh, Thank you. The reason I'm calling is, um, excuse me, according to Tom Tom Hartman, uh, he, he says that there are approximately 1,500 uh, radio stations in, in America that would be described as Republican right wing, and... Uh, they and I and I I know from uh, just checking them out, uh, they never take uh, progressive Democratic progressive phone callers at all. And then uh, I also wanted to say that uh, when we uh, when I uh, check out uh, different uh, religious programming on television and over radio, uh, almost one hundred percent give what we would say. Um, a Republican spin uh, to their sermons, and I think this uh, amounts to a very dangerous kind of uh, uh, censorship uh, and uh, an attempt, uh, uh, a very dangerous attempt at brainwashing people uh, to thinking only in those terms. And if these trends continue, uh, then I think uh, democracy trends on very tender territory. And uh, I, I really wish, uh, I don't know, but, uh, you know, there's probably, uh, I, I don't, uh, another Air American network would be really nice. Uh, thank God we have WCPT and a few progressive stations. But uh, hey, I really wish uh, if billionaires aren't going to do that. Uh, I'm certain there are people, some people, and I'm not an expert on that, some people in Hollywood who share, um, are be called progressives, surely they can pick up a state, buy a station here or there and make it profitable. Uh, and then I had a question as for you. Did you say something along the lines, uh, I might have missed it, that in uh, a certain state they wanted to ban uh, Pink Floyd's The Dark Side of the Moon, or did I misunderstand that? Okay, they do. Ron DeSantis in Florida. Ron DeSantis, um, they, they, Dark Side of the Moon got reissued. Right. It was it, it, it's you know, not a new record. Some of us remember it from a long time ago. The original yes. album cover, you know, had a graphic that, um, you know, it, it, it's sort of like light going through a prism and then there's a rainbow. 
Right? Sure, sure. Yeah. So, so DeSantis saw, saw the rainbow, and he says, this is not manly rock music. This isn't rock music that makes a man want to chase a woman. This is rock music that's degenerate and is against the manly virtues and is, is grooming kids for trans life. And so we're banning it from the state. Now, um, he can't ban music. There's not, I mean, you know, I don't know, I don't know what legal tools he thinks he is, is, is wielding to get rid of Pink Floyd. I, I happen to not be the greatest Pink Floyd fan, so it doesn't matter. But I mean, the, the, it doesn't, the music isn't what I'm interested in, but anybody should be able to listen to what they want to listen to. And the idea that this fascist governor, this pig in Florida who scares people and bullies people and yells at people who are different and thinks he's going to run for president by standing up in front of crowds and saying, you know what, people who look like me are the only Americans and people who think like me are the only Americans and nobody else counts. And you cannot teach history if you mention that there were black people in America and you cannot have a book if, God forbid, somebody in it is gay. This is so outrageous. And the fact that, then wait, wait, I'm not done being mad. The fact that wealthy people around the country have moved to Florida because they don't have to pay taxes and are pouring their billions into his campaign because somehow they think that's good for them, shame on them. America's the place that made these billionaires billionaires. And they got that way because we have, we have the systems that help businesses thrive because we put in place the laws and structures that have lifted everybody up. And now they've got theirs and they're supporting this tyrant. Shame on them. Well, I don't know who made this uh, fascist uh, DeSantis the arbiter of free speech, uh, but I, I mean, he sounds like he's just plain, uh, a fascist and crazy. He is. And, and who made him Who made him the arbiter? He made himself the arbiter. That's what they do. And the, the, it's up to the rest of us to wake up and stand up to it and say, to, look, uh, people who, I'm, I'm, now I'm thinking of, of you know, um, some people who left my state, right? Very wealthy people like Ken Griffin left Illinois, went to Florida. Now, I don't agree with his politics, but he was a good citizen here. He was, you know, he he used his wealth well in my city, supporting great cultural institutions. But now he's gone to Florida and he's giving it to that fascist. This is Mm -hmm. terrible for the country. It's absolutely terrible. It's shameful. I agree with you 100%, and I also think that uh, it is a very dangerous uh, thing uh, to start uh, 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 equally from what I described earlier, uh, dangerous to democracy is the banning of uh, music that has political content, because that, uh, in the hands of a well, it shouldn't be anyway, but in the hands of a DeSantis, uh, what's next? Is he going to try to... Ban all Bob Dylan. Uh, you, you know, I mean, where does it end? Uh, it ends in a terrible place, as all fascist rules do. Anyway, th- thank you so much for your call. I'm sorry I got excited. Well, no, no, no. Thank, yeah. thank you, Edwin. I, I really appreciate you taking my call as always. Yeah. Thank you so much. Right. I, I think, um, um, Paul, do I need to take one more break before the hour's up, or can we keep going? All right, we're at 773-763-9278. Ron, you're next. Hello, Edwin. Edwin, this Hello, is Ron. the 50-year anniversary. Oh, 
This is the 50-year anniversary of the signing of the Paris Peace Accords that ended our involvement in Vietnam, an illegal, immoral war that we never should have been in. But one of the legacies of that war, thank you to the military-industrial complex, was the M-16 rifle, which now is the AR-15, which they have put in the hands of uh, uh, so many mass murderers. And now they're coming out with a a child-sized version, like a daisy air rifle for children so they can have their own mass-killing machine. You know, we're a great country. We spread democracy all You know, JFK had bullets put in his head because he said he, he... hesitated about the Vietnam War. And you remember what he said about the CIA? I'm going to smash it to a million pieces so it can never be put together. And they had, and then bullets came into his head. You know. <laughs> uh, well, well part of so, it- so I, I, I hear you loud and clear. I don't go, I, I, I'm not with you on the theories about the conspiracies about how he got shot, but the, I'm totally with you on the gun stuff. And I mean, I didn't, I, I said this at the very beginning of the show, I, I, I'm happy to talk about it with people who are calling. I just didn't want to, I, I had a, I, I have a very tough time with, uh, the news this week with the, uh, Tyree Nichols case that we've now seen this horrible police murder. And then with the, the, the numbers of mass shootings, which are only going to go up and we know they're only going to go up, right? I mean, we had a six-year-old shoot his teacher in school. We're going to have, this is going to be, this is our normal life. And according to the right, this is the price of freedom. The price of freedom is that you take your life in your hands every time you go out. That if you're in a crowd, watch out. Because you could be, it could be the last crowd you're ever in. And that is the the so-called price of freedom because the right's idolatry around guns. Again, like, wake up, everybody. Let's move the country forward and tell these people to go back to the cave they belong in. Sorry. Thank you, Edwin. <laughs> anyway, thank you, Ron. Really appreciate it. You're Deborah, welcome. you're next. A blessed new year, blessed Trinity. Um, I feel your passion. In fact, I've been feeling like that for decades. As a black woman, African-American, I've been mm-hmm. speaking out and against things that have um, not demonstrated what democracy is. Uh, I am um, glad that um, Vladimir Zelensky um, invoked the name of Dr. King, which only brings us back to this day and time after his death, before his death. He was trying to show what democracy was, Harold Washington, the mayor, for all people. But what Harold Washington um, went against was those who, like the Republicans, especially those who were Democratic, progressives, and blue dog, Ron was a blue dog that would suppress the voice, the vote, and the closing down of schools. So, yeah, um, at, um, DeSantis is banning books, but Trump closed schools. He closed mental health facilities, the housing. He set on ha- more than half a billion dollar CHA funding, which created this crisis that we're in. So we have got to be sincere. And as far as black people, the um, the need to show democracy a quality of life, as your last guest spoke of, 
we we haven't had a quality of life. And sadly, we have representatives who've been in office 20, 30 years and sat back and saw it, and they're part of the problem. No witness protection program? Come on, Edwin, come on. No witness protection. Right, so, they never thought of it, and they're brilliant? Come on. So, so wait, hang on. Deborah, you, so you're calling from Chicago because you're talking about Chicago yes. issues. Um, here's what I think. Uh, leaving aside, what I totally agree about witness protection, although if there's no trust between the community and the police, we have to build that trust. But but most importantly, without, Chicago's losing. Yes, Chicago, Chicago's losing its black population, and and, and I've looked systematic. Rom did well, that. Well, hang on. I I, I want to say something else. I, I've lived here my whole life. I cannot imagine my city, this city, without a strong black population. I can't imagine this. Black Chicagoans did so much to build this city up, did so much to make it the city it is. I cannot imagine. And I know things are hard. And I know if you're a mom and you got a son, you're thinking, I can't, I got to go somewhere else so he can grow up safely. But I, I, I like whatever it takes to for the black population to feel like Chicago is the place they want to stay because Edwin, I, it's, yeah, it's unimaginable out, otherwise. The horse is out the barn. The horse is out the barn. When Mayor Washington was trying to have the trades program, they moved to the suburbs. Yes. And, and again, what Rom would do, and where were you progressives when this was happening? I mean, the, the, the horse is out the barn. Um, Lightfoot, she's for the first time since Mayor Washington is trying to do something progressive for the south and the west side of Chicago. We had food deserts. Um, David Hubbard, he started something on the west side to help deal with the food insecurities over there. What about the, the, the legislatures? They sat back and did absolutely nothing. To me, that's no more than what the Republic. And Putin, he saw this. Trump, he talked about coming to Chicago and cleaning it up because he knows that what how things have been done against black people here. Not that he's a hero of black people, but he knows it hasn't been right. I'm a veteran, yeah. I want, um, Edwin. And for me not to be able to go in a facility, um, where people who are here, immigrants, illegal immigrants, what have you, they can go and I'm stopped from going in. I would love to speak with you off the air. I'll leave my number, but uh, it's, 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 it's something that you can do. And I thank right, you. Well, leave call. your number. I'll, I'll follow up. And if I can bless help, you. I can help. If bless you. We'll, we'll find bless out. You. All right. Thank, thank, thank you. you for accepting yeah. my call. Bye-bye. You bet. Okay. Lou, what's on your mind? Hello, it sounds like you're tripping over yourself trying to demonstrate your virtue signaling. Shame on those people for moving. They're being oppressed by government, which is shutting down commerce and industry and putting all these onerous regulations on them that cause their businesses to be non-profitable. Why should they stay there? They have enough smarts to go to a state where they actually can practice some economic freedom. And you're upset about that? And okay, move to back, be specific with me. Like, what are the regulations you don't like? Let's just let's start down. What are the regulations you don't like? No, tell me what it is you don't like. Don't give me the. You know, I don't want the Lou. The generalities are great. What are the regulations you don't like? Like an eight-hour workday, like minimum wage, 
like uh, worker protection laws. Just tell me which ones you don't like. The, the, the oppressive, obnoxious things that are going on, especially with the lunacy of somebody like Gavin Newsom running that state right into the toilet. Shameful. And by the way, uh, your, buddy, your buddy, Mr. Biden, the uh, special site called Federation for American Immigration Reform, fairus.org, has reported on their opening page that he's now letting 5 million illegal aliens, and thousands and thousands of them are military-aged men who can take up weapons against the country. And you're a Okay, Democrat stop, stop, we're done. we're done, we're done, we're done, we're done, stop. I'm not listening to it anymore, goodbye, stop, done. All right, listen, that kind of, that kind of um, uh, bigotry, that kind of, um, oh, they're military-aged, First off, Biden is following the law on the border. He's following the law. And um, that's why you, you read all the time of people stopped at the border, of fentanyl um, confiscated at the border because they're doing their job, right? There are millions of human beings migrating for all kinds of reasons all over our planet. And they come to our country. Why? Because we are still a great country. So they come here. And you know what? They get stopped. And they get, and when, and when they get let in, they get let in for an asylum hearing for court, for a court process that Congress put in place. By the way, that process is flawed. And so things happen that shouldn't happen. But why isn't that process fixed? It isn't fixed because the Republicans will not fix it because they, remember, we had immigration reform. Dick Durbin has had bills for years. John McCain, Republican, for years. And they got stopped by Republicans. They got stopped by Republicans because they want it bad at the border so they can use it as an issue. So people like you, Lou, can come on the air and say, oh, my God, there are men coming here. And those men are somehow between 18 and 24. And you know what that means? They're military and they're going to take up arms. There's zero evidence for that lie. Zero. So you can't come on this show and get a free pass for lying to people. Turn off whatever drivel you're listening to. Okay, Roosevelt, you're up. Double E, I didn't want to talk about this, but I have to talk about it, about this gentleman that just called Harold. Those are the well, I didn't do enough? <laughs> no, 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 because let me, let, me, let, me, let me add to it. You're going to calm me down, right? Yeah, yeah. Good. Those okay. are the same talking points I hear on Fox News. Now, there's a program every Sunday in Spanish, two hours from three to five. I get into it with two Republicans, two guys that support Trump, and I tell them the same thing. You know what their answer is? Generalities. Always talking about the border, always talking about the same exact talking points, with the exception that it's in Spanish. And I tell them the same thing. Give me specifics. Give me specifics. Where do you get your information? They can't answer. You know, you know what they, one of them guys said one time? He said, from uh, from Twitter. So that tells you an idea. But here's a point I want to make. When it comes down to who busted the the gang of eight, it, the architect was Rush Limbaugh. Who conceded was Rubio. Rubio, you know, listened to Limbaugh and busted it open. And that was a, the best chance of us having immigration, comprehensive immigration reform. Yeah, so that's George what I wanted, Bush to, wanted to have it. I mean, Republicans yeah, have been exactly. for it until, but you know what happened, right? The nice fellows in the Supreme Court said, 
um, we're going to get rid of campaign finance laws. This was right around Citizens United. And the moment that happened, whoop, guess what? The money was there for uh, making government to stop working, hey. and it stopped working. Immigration hey, reform, was- environmental laws just vanished at that moment. Now, I want to close it with this. Did you see, uh, uh, speaking of Fox News, what Jesse Waters uh, admitted on the air, saying now now we have to present both sides when it came down to the papers on Pence. Did you see that? Did you read up on that? Meaning Jesse no, Waters. Tell me about it. Yeah. Okay. Jesse, there's a show called The Five on, on uh, Fox News. Jesse Waters, along with, uh, what's her name, uh, Perot, Judge Perot, yeah. admitted. Yeah. Admitted on the air that because Pence had, you know, given those papers, he says, and this is the word for for, for word that what Jesse Waters said. He says, why didn't he burn them? We would have never found out about it if they had just burnt them. We were doing so good with Biden, meaning his papers, his his uh, 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 investigation. Now he complicated it by the fact that we have to present both sides. So I want you to check that because it's, it's a video it was on the show and, and, and that tells you what Fox News is all about. And then you have those little disciples such, such as the gentleman they called or the guys that I talk to on every Sunday that follow and that's where they get their information. It's the same exact talk. It's not information. There's no, there's no data there. There's no there there. Now, and, and, and it's always... To motivate or or, or to uh, your 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 feelings, your your your, you know what I'm saying? It's well, just, it got my feelings up. I you yeah, know it got me going. I'm awake now. And that's why maybe that's what made me you know congratulate you right now because of the fact that's the way you're supposed to be. Don't take no BS from these guys because they want they want to take up the oxygen in the air uh, uh, at the end of your show. That's exactly what yeah, I told you well, before. This is the thing. I know. But, I know. Well, you know what? I, I, I want to give them time, and someday some of them call in, and, and they're going to have a good point. And there are good points what? to be made on the right and interesting no, conversations. I agree. I agree. But, 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 that, <laughs> but, but what I heard just then wasn't it. What I heard then was a bunch <laughs> of blather, bigoted blather. And to, and to Brian's point from Joliet, he said it right. They are going to ban uh, 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 Joan Baez and 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 uh, and 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 the gentleman he, he spoke of, of the, yeah, the, yeah, the rock yeah, and roll. Yeah. Pink Floyd. Yeah. All right. Well, let them try. Yeah. You know, let them try. We're going to fight back. Oh, and yeah, know, I mean, it, we, I mean, it we learned in the there are more of us than them. If we wake up, they can't win. So look, you know, look, let's look, stay look. awake and. Look, Oops, look what's going on we're with out of time. We're Thank out of time. We're out you. of time. All right, everybody, I'll see you next week. Thank you. Thank you for your patience with me as I lose my temper occasionally. Um, and I will uh, uh, hang in there. We'll see you next week. <laughs>